Welcome into the best in true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. There is a very, very popular show on Netflix called Making a Murder. I know you've all seen it. You're all uh, very, very interested in the case of Stephen Avery. You've all taken one or two looks at the program, and you all have opinions on that uh, on that show. The book that was out there before Making a Murderer is Wrecking Crew by John Ferrick, demolishing the case against Stephen Avery. It's it's celebrating its fifth anniversary in November of 2023, and it's been re-released with a new epilogue, with a new interview with Stephen Avery and his attorney, Catherine Zellman. And I, uh, I got a, the privilege of being able to read the book over the weekend and take a look at this new interview with, with Stephen Avery and be able to read the book once again and take a look at John Ferrick's work and kind of see the case again through, through this perspective and really break down the case again and see some things that I wanted to ask John about and, and bring up this case again, because I think when we get into that rush of the making the, the, uh, well, the, for lack of a better term, the, 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 the Stephen Avery case in, in, in getting, getting behind that fervor of the, the Netflix fervor, fervor, if you will, a lot of people were enraged when it first came out and they wanted to get behind Stephen Avery. And then it died down. And now Stephen Avery sits in a jail cell. And nothing's happened. There's been no appeal. There's been no moving of the wheels of justice. There's been no look at the case. There's been no look at what's been going on with the ancillary players in this. There's a theory that Bobby Dassey was the killer in this case. He was the one who killed Teresa Halbach. We'll ask John Ferrick about that. And we'll, we'll deal in that theory that's been sitting in the background here for so long. And why have the wheels of justice in, in Wisconsin been turning so slowly? And is there the making of a murderer three in the background? Because I think the state of Wisconsin in Manitowoc County is really afraid of making of a murderer three. Is that a possibility here? We'll talk about that with our guest today. John Farrick. John Farrick is a native of Joliet, Illinois, and returned to his roots in 2017 to become the editor-reporter of the Joliet Patch. He previously spent five years with the Wisconsin investigative team for USA Today Network and nine years in Nebraska at the Omaha World Herald newspaper. He's an authority on wrongful arrest and conviction cases. His 2016 book for Wild Blue Press, Failure of Justice, chronicled the nation's largest wrongful conviction case. His first book, Bloody Lies, told the story about a CSI director who went to prison for planting blood in high-profile Nebraska murder cases. Farrick's fifth true crime book, Wrecking Crew, Demolishing the Case Against Stephen Avery, was published through Wild Blue Press on November 20th of 2018. We're celebrating the fifth anniversary with a fifth anniversary edition with a brand new epilogue involving a uh, brand new interview with Stephen Avery. We'll just bring him on the program right now, ladies and gentlemen. Let's welcome in to True Crime Tuesday, John Farrick. John, thanks for coming on to the program. Thanks for having me on, Tim. Always a pleasure. John, let's, uh, let's jump into the deep end, if we will. 
uh, right away and let's talk about why Stephen Avery is still sitting behind bars and why his case hasn't been heard before a brand new judge uh, who's been introduced into the case, into the appeals process. Uh, Catherine Zellner has been his attorney since 2016 or 2017, 2016, I believe. Uh, why is it that this thing is ground to a halt? That's a good question to start with, Tim. Um, you know, I think for a lot of people, millions of people probably that watched Making a Murder, you know, in the first episode, the first docuseries in uh, December of 2015, you know, people immediately came away outraged and frustrated with the Wisconsin justice system. And also there was a lot of people that not necessarily convinced Tim that Avery was innocent, but they felt that, you know, even if he was guilty, the system railroaded him, didn't treat him fairly, that the trial was rigged. And uh, and certainly a lot of the evidence appeared uh, to have been conjured up or fabricated. So a lot of people took that perspective that they really weren't sure one way or the other, whether or not Stephen was uh, was guilty or not, but they felt that, uh, you know, why not give him a second trial? Uh, there's so many people convicted of crimes, especially murder, you know, and sexual assault around the country. And I've covered a lot of these cases where they have, in fact, gotten a second case, a uh, second trial, sometimes even a third case. I remember, um, you know, um, on, oftentimes on technicalities in the legal justice system. So the fact that that Avery was fortunate enough that his case drew national and international exposure and Kathleen Zellner, of all people, one of the, the you know country's most acclaimed wrongful conviction lawyers, uh, decides that she's going to take up this case uh, on Stephen Avery's uh, behalf. Um, you know, because again, for background for everybody, he was languishing in prison when doc when the documentary came out. Really had no hope, um, you know, of appeal process. And then you know, he latches on to Kathleen Zellner, of all people, to take on his case. And here we are now, almost seven, eight years uh, later, and Stephen Avery's plight, his situation, Tim, really hasn't changed much. Uh, he was, you know, convicted and, uh, you know, still pursuing post-conviction appeals back in December of 2015 when the docuseries first came out. We've had two seasons of uh, Making a Murder come out, 2015 and also in 2018. Uh, millions and millions of people around the world um, you know, really jumped on Stephen's bandwagon, and also that of Brendan Dassey, his cousin. Um, but yet, st here we are. Um, nothing, nothing really has changed, and I think that really dumbfounds and surprises a lot of people, especially uh, based on what they watched in uh, the two series of Making a Murder. I'm going to hit you from the devil's advocate side of things here for a second, John. I don't mean to do this disrespectfully. I'm, I'm doing this just from a devil's advocate side of things. The people who say, well, John, there's a reason for that. And the reason being is that well, maybe Stephen is part of a party that took place in the murder of Teresa Halbach. Maybe he does have some guilt here. Maybe he is part of the reason that Teresa Halbach is dead. Um, maybe there is some guilt here. The, the judge that was part of the original ruling of this case had reason to believe that he was part and party to this. And the people who, and, and specifically Wisconsin law enforcement, keep seem to keep referring back to the fact that the people who put together making a murderer, specific, 
specifically the two filmmakers, they keep saying, well, you didn't see the entire trial. And making a murderer was specific cuts and in part and parcel of the trial, not necessarily the entire trial. When you see the entire trial, when you get the entire transcript and you put everything together, you really do see where Stephen Avery is guilty. I want you to respond to the naysayers that say, well, when you really see everything the way it's presented, you really do see where Stephen Avery is guilty. You know, I think, you know, for a lot of people, uh, and again, as I pointed out earlier, as far as the guilt, you know, is concerned, the um, the real reason why I think people should be at least open, open their eyes up to the possibility of a second trial, you know, is that in our American justice system, Tim, there is an expectation that everything is done on the up and up as far as the police and the prosecution are concerned. So if somebody who committed a murder, um, you know, was arrested and stood trial. And then it's known at the, at the time of the trial or after the fact of the trial that several pieces of evidence, let's just say three for the sake of a number, Mm -hmm. you know, three pieces of evidence, you know, were, were planted or fabricated or made up. But the way our justice system is supposed to work is that that conviction should be at that point in time overturned, you know, and the person is, either given a new trial or their case goes away. And and even if they did commit the crime as heinous and, you know, as disgusting, you know, and despicable as that is, they should be allowed um, you know, either a new trial or, or, to, or, or to escape the justice system. Uh, um, I mean, we have standards in our justice system where you can't have, if there was 10 pieces of evidence, five are legitimate and five are not. Um, and then, you know, you're convicted. Uh, um, the police are not supposed to fabricate evidence. Um, and the prosecution is not allowed to hide evidence, especially evidence that could be exculpatory. Exculpatory meaning, you know, evidence that uh, that benefits the defendant and may point to another um, suspect or person of interest. Um, you know, that t- type of information is supposed to be turned over to the defense. And Regardless of whether the fact, you know, that make in making a murder, as we all know, no documentaries are, you know, are in the in ad nauseum, you know, repeat or rehash of a trial, whether it's the OJ case or, you know, or 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 this one with Stephen Avery or other famous cases. Um, there's certainly editing that's that that takes place. Um, but uh, I think the main takeaways from making a murder are that the key evidence from the case was presented Um you didn't walk away from making a murderer, you know, and say, oh, my God, I can't believe they didn't present, you know, this clue, you know, that proved Stephen Avery did it or that clue. I mean, there were several clues that the police did um, collect that if you take them at face value, definitely point to the possibility or probability that Stephen Avery only could have done it. You know, certainly one example of that, Tim, being the um, the uh, the spare key for her vehicle that turned up on Stephen Avery's bedroom floor that contained Stephen Avery's DNA on it. So again, you take that face value, you forget about the fact that the police have been in the room six or seven times prior to that key turning up. And then you would say, well, yeah, that's obviously is a strong clue. It uh, definitely points that, uh, you know, Avery probably moved and handled her vehicle. And then lo and behold, his DNA is on the, the vehicle uh, key. Uh, that definitely uh, proves and points to him as the, as the possible, or I should say probable killer in that case. So, but again, 
the fact that so many pieces of evidence um, are called into question and are found by the police, um, the Mantua County Police of all people too, um, you know, the whole conflict of interest issue, um, definitely raises questions as far as, you know, whether or not he received a fair trial the first time around. And that's why so many people, you know, believe that uh, he should get a second trial, including people that say he may be guilty. If he is guilty, prove it again, you know, prove it a second time, sure. but do it under, um, you know, legitimate circumstances. Don't, you know, don't move the goalposts or the, you know, or the bases around. Sure. Absolutely. There's something in the book, which I, and again, for those who have only seen Making a Murderer both seasons, I encourage them to read Wrecking Crew. And this is why. Um, as someone who is is from the Joliet area, from the Midwest, they don't really get a feel for, and especially if you're on the East Coast or West Coast, you really don't get a feel for what the Midwest is like. And this is the only way I can put it, John. And, and I put it brilliantly being a Minnesotan myself who's worked radio in Wisconsin who's worked in Western Wisconsin, who's essentially been put in the middle of a cornfield and worked radio in Wisconsin. Uh, and it has to do with, and, and I'm, not, I'm not beating up on law enforcement in Wisconsin whatsoever, but you, and I don't have a better, I know I'm dancing around the, the, the term here. The cronyism of, of how you hire law enforcement in, in different small towns is the only way to put it. Um, sometimes it's as simple as when you're hiring law enforcement, it's this guy's buddy, or it's, it's you know, we're looking for a new cop in town. Well, you know, so-and-so knows so-and-so who knows so-and-so, let's make him a cop. It's, it's not necessarily the finest of the finest, that that get the job it's you know what elmer happens to know steve who happens to know uh you know john over here well he happens to be available he doesn't necessarily have forensic science backgrounds or he didn't go to school for it but we're going to train him to be that because he happens to be available no that's a great point tim and uh and that's something that you know I've done several interviews over the years as far as about the Stephen Avery case, and that's that's a question that really hasn't come up much. So I'm glad you pointed that out because that is a, a key component of the Stephen Avery case, and and it's and it's definitely true in a lot of you know high profile cases that happen uh, in the Midwest uh, because there are so many that uh, that don't happen necessarily in Chicago or Milwaukee or you know or Minneapolis, St. Paul, the you know the major cities. Mm -hmm. um, and most of the Midwest, as you and I both know, is made up of, you know, communities that are 5,000, 10,000, 50,000 people. And uh, and especially in county law enforcement, more so even than than city or, t or village law enforcement, counties, as is, 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 is you well know, are the sheriff is elected by the people every four yes. years, usually every four years. Some places it's two, but most places nowadays are four years. So I've always kind of scratched my head. You know, just growing up, knowing that the that the sheriff, you know, the top law enforcement official is really chosen by the the people. Now, I could see that you know people come back and say, "Well, this is our referendum, basically, on whether or not they're doing a good job." And and I can somewhat agree with that. the The problem, though, because of that, is as you just point out, so many jobs in law enforcement 
on the sheriff side of things, you know, our patronage, our patronage uh, job where, you know, somebody, somebody's son, and I see this even to this day um, here in Illinois, there are so many police officers that have a brother um, or a sister or a father, you know, or a son. And, and I'm not saying they're not qualified for the job. A lot of them, you know, just, I mean, people in our profession have sons and, you know, sure. daughters that uh, follow in, yep. in news media, you know, mm -hmm. as well. But, uh, but especially in the small towns, you know, there's, as I point out in this case, uh, with Stephen Avery's case, you know, there was a key individual that works on his, uh, you know, on the on the on the murder investigation um, and had been involved in another high profile Mattawak County uh, case over there. And his background was as a school bus driver. Um, and he's really not going anywhere with his life. He dropped out of college, you know, took a job, uh, you know, driving a school bus and then. You know, within a year or two, he knows somebody or, you know, where, where it gets around. Hey, the Mantua County Sheriff's Office is hiring and um, he gets his foot in the door, you know, and and within five, seven years, you know, he's he's reached the rank of a sergeant or a lieutenant. So, um, yeah, the training aspect is is really it's just not there, unfortunately, for a lot of small town agencies and you know, every five, 10 years, you know, sooner or later, there is going to be a heinous, you know, God awful crime that's going to happen in, in one of our Midwestern communities. And, you know, the most experienced police, oftentimes, the state police, or, you know, or, you know, or the Department of Criminal Investigations, uh, um, or even like the closest Metro Department, uh, or regional task force, oftentimes, they don't get called in. Um, a lot of times, it's again, for political reasons that uh, the small town agency wants to be the one to let everybody know, hey, we're the ones that you know solved it, we didn't need help from Milwaukee, or, or Minneapolis, St. Paul, or Chicago, you know, we, we solved it on our own. And, and because of that, no different than in our profession. If people don't have the training and the experience, it uh, it uh, definitely could set back a case and investigation. It could certainly put police, you know, on the wrong path as far as getting tunnel vision um, in the investigation. And I mean, that's one of the key takeaways I had, at least on the Stephen Avery case. Again, regardless of whether or not he is guilty or not of the crime. Um, Police immediately latch in on the on the probability that oh it has to be him because they're convinced that he's such a pariah and a bad person and a lot of them even struggle to believe that he was innocent of the of the 1985 rape that yes. uh, that he yeah. clearly was innocent of the DNA proved it was Gregory Allen um, but the fact that you still had a lot of police that refused to believe DNA and just looked at him as just a bad guy and then here he is you know on the verge of receiving several million dollars uh you know from the from the police and from his county um just made it all the more um you know um unsettling for a lot of the Manitowoc county police that uh that uh you know when a murder happened on the avery property again you know the avery property not just stevens property but he became the uh prime suspect from the get-go um at the exclusion of his other brothers and a few other shady characters that also were affiliated and hung around uh, you know the avery salvage yard compound well see that's the thing and again with the the cronyism or the small town attitude you also get the you know, once once you've run afoul of the police in the, in a small town, then it's the talk. Then it's the, well, you know, they're kind of a bad seed over there. And then you've you've gotten on their radar, and then you've gained a reputation, and it's hard to shake that reputation. Right. You know? uh, I mean, 
I I just thought about, I mean, that was definitely true in the first case that I ever wrote a book on, the one you mentioned earlier, Bloody Lies, CSI, Scandal in the Heartland. It was a horrific murder. It was, uh, you know, it was basically, uh, you know, repeat of In Cold Blood, uh, Truman Capote's book, except it happened in Nebraska, not, uh, not, uh, um, you know, not in Kansas uh, mm-hmm. with the with the Clutter family, but uh, in that case, uh, small town sheriff's agency that handled about one murder every ten to fifteen years took over the case, and they immediately learned, like you said, uh, there was a couple bad seeds in the family. You know, a couple wayward uh, cousins. Uh, you know, one used to squeal the tires of his vehicle, so that you know caught the uh, you know, attention of the sheriff's deputies that patrolled that area of the county, and uh, and then the other family members just thought that. Uh, that uh, the murder victim's nephew uh, was the black sheep of the family, and they just figured he had to be involved. And, uh, you know, the two get rounded up, arrested, and uh, lo and behold, all the physical evidence uh, comes back uh, negative as far as, uh, you know, whether or not uh, there was any DNA, uh, you know, that point to them as the killers. And with that, with the combination of cronyism within the, the police department, Lack of sufficient training, I guess you could you could put it that way, um, and the not necessarily wanting help from from state authorities or from national authorities or from authorities that may have sufficient training. You take that along with wanting to push a narrative that to them makes sense, but you don't want to take a wider scope and look at other scenarios you you want to go with the easiest scenario that that presents itself because it's an open and shut case at that point john it makes for it makes for easy police work to to do what you can to solve a case and make it easy for yourself and be able to go back to again you're talking about sheriff's departments that get elected you can say well we solve this one easily it's obviously stephen avery we move on with life and, you know, and it's Brendan Dassey and here you go. Here's your convictions. We did it. We didn't need any help, outside help. Ta-da. And we move on with life. And, you know, yay for the sheriff's department, you know, be sure to elect us on the next election, you know, you know, you know, God love us and all that. Um, But what people don't realize is that, Small town justice doesn't necess- isn't necessarily as tidy as that, and it doesn't move like that. And and there are complications more times than not. And it's one of those things that you know, unless somebody speaks up, and it's hard to speak up in a small town because when you speak up, you get stifled. You get don't don't speak up against the man because you're going to have trouble for yourself or you're going to make trouble. Well, and that was certainly true even with Stephen Avery's first case. Uh, um, You know, there's a earlier chapter in the book, you know, where I talk about an individual that while Stephen Avery was in prison, Tim, you know, for the, for the vicious, uh, you know, savage rape of Penny Bernstein along the shores of uh, Lake Michigan, you know, there was a, there was at least one individual in town that was going around, you know, trying to let Sheriff Tim, uh, um, Tom Kasarik know that, uh, that Stephen Avery was innocent in that crime. And eventually, you know, the sheriff, 
takes a police report from the fellow himself and basically tells him, you know, if you go around telling, you know, these false rumors, you know, that you're going to get charged with a crime yourself. So, so the, you know, hearing something like that from the sheriff himself, um, again, that, you know, the rookie deputy that works for him, you know, definitely is going to put the fear of God, you know, in, you know, in, in, in somebody's, uh, you know, uh, heart, uh, you know, in a town of 10, 15,000 people you sure. know, that they better keep their mouth shut and, uh, you know, and keep their opinions to themselves. And sometimes it's just to save a little bit of paperwork or save a little bit of trouble where really it should be, you know what? Well, if that's the truth, then maybe we should just pursue the truth. And, and find out what the truth is and do the extra legwork. And more times than not, we're finding that it's just not wanting to pursue the truth because it's a little extra work. And sometimes it's because we don't have the manpower. Sometimes it's because we don't have the man hours. And sometimes it's because if we go down that road, someone's just leading us down that road because they want to take us on a wild goose chase. You know, someone wants to get their kicks by taking us on that that road. And we can't keep doing that. Otherwise, we'll be chasing our tail. You know. Right. And then there's also, you know, the other scenario too that just it can be bad for business. I mean, there's there's people's careers, you know, and in you know in, in, in positions in a sheriff's department, uh, you know, that could be on the line if it comes out or is proven, you know, that they were responsible for you know a wrongful arrest and a wrongful conviction right. um, at the expense of pursuing the truth tim you know and pursuing a more obvious uh, other uh, um you know other suspect or suspects and that can get expensive i mean uh, different lawsuits against against the municipality if they did arrest the wrong person um and and we're at a, we're at a point now where with Stephen Avery where Imagine the implications if something were to happen that would prove otherwise. If, if it were found that Stephen Avery did not murder Teresa Hallback. If, if it was not him that murdered her and burned her in a, in a burn pit. And it was someone else. Imagine imprisoning a man, putting him behind bars, and taking away his life. And imagine the implications, the millions of dollars that it would have to be paid out to him as a result of this and the egg on the face and the, not only just the, the police, the police that, it, that would have to uh, save face here, but the judges that would have to save face as well. There's a lot in this that, I mean, the Wisconsin justice system would look pretty bad. Right. And yeah, it's just a full stack of dominoes. I mean, from, you know, all the way from, I mean, you could throw jurors in that, you know, uh, equation as well, you know, a handful of you know, prosecutors, uh, you know, CSI evidence technicians, uh, you know, just uh, deputies. So there's so many people that, um, would, would, would look foolish and be exposed, you know, as, as being foolish, uh, um, you know, and, and incompetent in their, in their jobs. Uh, you know, if it was, you know, if the world knew, you know, if it was proven that Stephen Avery was in fact innocent as well of Teresa Halbach's murder, just as he was innocent uh, for Penny Bernstein's, uh, you know, rape uh, back in in the summer of 1985, Tim. Let's do this, John. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about why the evidence surrounding Bobby Dassey has been suppressed. I want to talk about Bobby Dassey, who he is, 
what it was surrounding him that was so strong and why it wasn't strong enough to be brought up and basically spotlighted to uh, to the courtroom, to the jury, to to everybody to say, hey, maybe Bobby Dassey is the guy we should be looking at here and not Stephen Avery. Why isn't Bobby Dassey the guy? And the people who came forward and said, hey, I saw this guy doing some suspicious stuff. I don't think Stephen Avery's the guy you should be looking at. Maybe it's this guy. When we come back, we'll talk with John Farrick about why Bobby Dassey is the guy that we should be looking at and not Stephen Avery. The book is Wrecking Crew. The fifth anniversary is out right now with a special epilogue uh, surrounding Catherine Zellner, uh, Stephen Avery's attorney, and a special epilogue with an interview with Stephen Avery. I tell you, it's fascinating, folks. The book itself will take a deeper dive into why Stephen Avery should be exonerated for this crime, why he should be out of jail, and why there should be other people put behind bars. Uh, The book is fascinating. It's a fifth anniversary edition with updated content and an exclusive new interview with Stephen Avery Wrecking Crew. Demolishing the case against Stephen Avery is available right now. We have a link in the description of this program. When we come back, more with John Farrick right after this on the best in true crime podcasting, True Crime Tuesday. Welcome back to the best in true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. Our guest is author John Farrick. The book is Wrecking Crew, Demolishing the Case Against Stephen Avery. It's the fifth anniversary edition. It's got an exclusive interview with Stephen Avery in the book. And I tell you, it's got some very interesting stuff in the interview. Again, we're not going to spoil the interview with Stephen Avery, of course, um, but some very interesting stuff in that. Some, some uh, what's a good way of putting it, John? Uh, some very uh, intriguing, I would say, unexpected yes. uh, developments, yes. uh, comments, uh, you know, remarks from him. Um, yes. I mean, the one thing about Stephen Avery, and this is what Zellner, Kathleen Zellner's trail always impresses upon me and, and anybody else for that matter, but uh, but just that, that Stephen's a very simple, as much as people, you know, have identified Brendan Dassey, Stephen's nephew, you know, as being, um, you know, intellectually challenged, uh, developmentally disabled, uh, and he certainly was taken advantage of by, uh, um, you know, by the, the Detective Wiegert uh, and Fassbender in, you know, in the interview they did of him at the school when he was 16 years old. But Stephen himself is a very simple you know, um, individual, you know, as well. So, um, you know, he's not a real deep thinker. No, no. He is. A, he, I was. If he is a deep thinker, he he struggles to express himself. He's that way. He's just a real blue collar kind of down earth, typical Wisconsin. You know, mm-hmm. um, as far as uh, you know, just uh, you know, being a rugged person. You know, I mean, gets his hands dirty. You know, cuts up his hands. You know, working on the vehicles uh, at his parents. Uh, you know, auto salvage yard. Uh, you know, when he was free um but uh but he tells it like it is so you know it's just he's not really one to kind of craft you know um you know um a story that really seems unbelievable i mean you just have to take it at face value as far as if you know is he telling the truth or not and uh you know and uh you know some people you know could be offended by just even some of his comments about uh you know even you know even bobby dassey or bobby dassey as well so yeah i get the feeling through your writings that he's kind of had enough. Like he's, you know, it. he's, 
and when I say he's kind of had enough, like like he's you know he's putting the story out there, and he's not wavering from it at all. Like this is how it happened, and like you said, he's very no nonsense. This is how it happened. This is what went on. I and and he's he's like I don't see why people don't see how it happened. Like he, yeah, there's, there's, there's a way to put it, Tim. Yeah. A level of frustration is is what I'm trying to get get at. Like there's almost a level of frustration on his end. Like why don't people see the way it happened? Is that fair to right. say? Yeah, I was say that's definitely a fair fair way to put it. And uh, you know, just from his standpoint, you know, he he's thought things through as far as you know, if he knows truthfully that he didn't do it, then then he, like everybody else, wants to know then who who else you know then who is responsible for Teresa Halbach's murder, you know, and you know he's of the strong opinion that it had to be somebody also within the family or somebody that was connected uh, to the salvage yard property that it wasn't some random stranger that just uh, you know happened to see her on the side of highway 147 with a flat tire you know uh, you know just something crazy scenario like that so uh, so he's tried to do his own logical you know deduction as well to figure out you know who would be most likely responsible for for killing her um and he like his attorney both are of the strong belief now in 2023, you know, that uh, that his other nephew, uh, um, Brendan's brother, Bobby, uh, older brother, Bobby, you know, um, you know, is the most likely uh, culprit in their eyes, Tim. Let's talk a little bit about Bobby Dassey, because he um, to say that he's uh, he's the most likely suspect based on his actions and based on some of the things he did in the surrounding days would be pretty accurate. Uh, if you look at some of his actions having to do with some of his internet searches, first of all, are very bizarre. Tell us a little bit about some of his internet searches, first of all, uh, and how disturbing they are. Well, there was, and the, again, this is all information when I talked earlier about, you know, as far as a fair trial, um, this was all evidence that the police and the prosecutor, Ken Kratz, had obtained. They had, you know, when they had uh, done search warrants and obtained, you know, the computer records from the Dassey family house, uh, and it was never turned over to Dean Strang, you know, and Jerry Buting, uh, Stephen Avery's original lawyer. So Kathleen Zellner, to her credit, is the one that uncovered any and all this information from the Dassey computer. And and again, uh, a lot of it dealt with, you know, real dark and disturbing, you know, images that were found from the computer as far as uh, um, um, just real graphic images as far as, you know, dead bodies, uh, um, searches as far as, uh, um you know, just, you know, violent, violent means of death. Um, there was also a, a folder that was created on the computer. Um, Zellner's computer expert, Gary Hunt, was never really able to determine the date that it actually was created, but it but it, it was a folder for, you know, it had the name of Teresa Hallbuck in it. And uh, there was one that also, you know, had the word DNA in it. Um and what was also interesting too, Tim, is that it, that Zellner was able to determine that uh, that Bobby Dassey's mother, um, Stephen Avery's sister Barb, had had a couple different repairmen, you know, you know, um, show up and try to, you know, reboot the computer, you know, and there are certain timeframes, you know, in the general time frame as far as you know, leading up to Teresa Halbeck's disappearance and murder and the investigation, you know, where. 
just the records, you know, from the hard drive, you know, just vanished and were taken off. So again, you know, from the perspective, as far as if you're looking at another person that may have had something to do with Theresa Halbach's disappearance, you know, why in the world would anybody be, you know, messing around and fiddling with the computer um, and removing, you know, information from it, uh, you know, during the time frame, you know, of you know, leading up to Teresa Halbeck's, uh, you know, brutal disappearance and, and murder. So, uh, um, and it came out, you know, through other interviews with other family members in the Dassey household, you know, that Bobby was pretty much the only one that uh, that used the computer. The other brothers were at work. Mm-hmm. Or at school in mm-hmm. Brendan's case, so uh, uh, Bobby, no matter what, was the likely uh, you know person using the computer. It's also important. I just remembered this too, Tim. Is that is that some of the computer searches also refute Bobby Dassey's trial testimony because he was the key witness for the prosecution that 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 left the jury um, um, with the belief and impression that the last time Teresa Hallbuck was ever seen alive was that she was walking directly to Stephen Avery's trailer. Yeah. And the person that testified to that was Bobby Dassey himself. Yeah. And there was something to the effect of, uh, if I remember right, Bobby Dassey claimed that he could see Stephen Avery's front door from his trailer. And, and Stephen said, that's right. impossible. You, you can't see the front front of his trailer from their trailer. Right. And then you had other strange things, too, that uh, that happened, uh, you know, where he pulls in the d- day or two after Teresa Halbeck disappears, grabs a dead deer carcass. Yes. Yeah. Off the road, you know, and brings it into his garage and strings it up. And there's photographs of that that anybody and everybody listening could find on the Internet. And, and I think there's one photo of that in my book, uh, Wrecking Crew, as well. But. The um, the idea of doing that, um, you also had the strange testimony from him and, you know, his, his stepfather, eventual stepfather, Scott Tadich, uh, you know, where they both testified that they were passing each other around 3 p.m. So basically within 15, 20 minutes of when Teresa Hallbuck was last seen alive, last seen alive around 235, 240-ish, but, uh, but at 3 p.m., you know, on a very lonely, you know, country, I should say country, but a state highway out in the country um, that I've traveled many times during my time in Wisconsin that mm-hmm. uh, that that supposedly these two pass each other, you know, and rec- you know, wave to each other, recognize each other going 50, 55 miles an hour or two. So uh, um, for them, it was a perfect alibi, you know, that uh, that the defense was not able to break. Um, but it uh by each each of them identifying each other, you know, it definitely took the heat off of each other as well, as far as having a culpability as far as her disappearance and dis- murder. And probably, you know, um, I mean, more importantly, too, is the dismemberment of her body. Right. And in tying the deer into the dismemberment, there was some questioning from law enforcement authorities to Bobby Dassey, and they asked about, you know, did you claim the deer? Because when you when you find a deer on the road or when you hit a deer in the road, more typically when you hit a deer in the road, especially in the Midwest, you have to claim it with the DNR. So when you when you hit it, when you hit a deer in the road, they'll ask you, do you want to keep the carcass, um, which you have the right to, which seems weird. Yeah. I know. But um, if you claim the carcass or want the carcass, you can take it and have it processed at a, at a butcher. 
Uh, so, or you can keep the carcass. And if here in the Midwest, if you're adept at it, you can keep the carcass. You could butcher the carcass yourself and then take the meat in for processing, whatever you choose to do with it. In this case, it, but either way, it has to be tagged by the DNR. They ha- it, everything has to be processed through the, the Department of Natural Resources. In this case, he claimed he didn't go through the DNR. He didn't do anything or tag it through the DNR. He just went out, found a deer and took it home, which is weird. Mm-hmm. It's just bizarre. Especially because part of his other testimony, Tim, was that that he had gone out that afternoon as well, um, right around the same time that Teresa Hallbeck visited the Avery Salvage Air property to take the photographs of uh, you know of the of the van um, mm-hmm. that uh, you know that was for sale. So so Bobby's story is that yeah that he took a shower you know saw Teresa Hallbeck you know show up uh, saw her walk towards Stephen Avery's property then he left and uh, went um, deer hunting himself um, had no success and then you know a day or two later is going to grab. Um, you know, uh, randomly just grab a, a dead deer carcass off the road and not know anything at all about, uh, you know, who hit it or, you know, or, you know, whether it was diseased or not. Right. Um, That's the other you thing. Know, anything like that. Yeah. yeah. You d- you don't know if the, the if it died of a disease, especially if chronic wasting was a big deal back at that point in time in Wisconsin, Tim. Right. It was huge. And you don't yeah. want to pick up a deer that's died of chronic wasting because it's not edible. So what are you doing with it? Right. So. Right. So then he he claims, well, when they had asked him, well, what do you do with the deer heads? Well, if it's a trophy deer, you would probably want to mount it. But he claimed that they had burned the heads in the back in the burning pits. The burn barrels, the burning barrels for the yeah, the for, burn, for bur- yeah, burning yeah. barrels. So 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 there's his alibi or what he thought was going to be his alibi. If he just went and picked up a random deer, that was going to get him out. So I think that's why he just went and got a random deer. This all just looks, you know what I'm saying, John? It all just looks very suspicious. And we didn't even talk about or remind listeners yet, Tim, but but one of the other key, uh, you know, issues as far as pointing back to him, um, to Bobby Dassey of all people, is the fact that some of Teresa Hallbuck's bones were discovered in his, you know, the Dassey burn yes. barrels, yeah. not Stephen Avery's burn barrel that uh, that was over by his garage, uh, um, um, you know, and uh, on the other side of his uh, his red trailer. Um, but uh, um, the story from the prosecution obviously was, uh, as everybody remembers, that that Stephen supposedly just, you know, threw her body, incinerated her in his burn pit, you know, on mm-hmm. his property, mm-hmm. which is very, very close to his uh, trailer and his experts you know, that uh, Zellner brought in, you know, testified to, uh, you know, would have basically, you know, put the trailer up in flames and would have probably, you know, blew up the uh, propane tank as well, just based on the proximity, um, you know, to that in the garage as well, the old uh, rickety shack garage. But, uh, but, but, but factually, you know, uh, Teresa's bones, some of her bones were in fact found in the Dassey burn barrel. So that begs the question that if Stephen Avery did commit the crime, why would he, you know, be fine? Why would he, you know, know, leave some of the bones, you know, in his burn pit and then but drag a bunch of them, 
you know, walk, you know, walk a couple hundred yards away and uh, and dispose some of them into his uh, into his nephew's uh, uh, burn barrel. Um, and then we get into this whole other, you know, discussion, Tim, about the fact that a lot of other bones were discovered you know, uh, about a quarter to a third of a mile away at the, you know, at the Manitowoc County quarry property. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of strange questions, a lot of strange questions. And, and that had all to do with uh, Scott Tadich too. And, and, and some odd behavior that he has, which is detailed in this book as well. A very thorough job you did here, uh, John, when it came to multiple, players in this and in some bizarre behavior but but it all comes back to bobby and it all comes back to his behaviors not stephen avery it had nothing to do with stephen avery's behavior had everything to do with bobby dassey's behavior and things that he was doing right and that becomes a key point as far as what's happened over the last few years tim and and certainly a key component of the direction i wanted to go with with this book update the fact that you have a handful of in, of people that have never crossed paths at all in life tim that all separately remembered seeing not stephen avery or not Brendan Dassey, but they were sure that it was Bobby Dassey to the point that they're willing to, you know, sign a sworn affidavit under the pains and penalties of perjury. Um, And they're not looking for their 15 minutes of fame or, you know, any, you know, media interviews or anything like that. But these are just people that that felt that they felt strongly that they saw something, you know, and. And in some of their cases, they did, in fact, go to the police, uh, you know, and let them know that they did see Bobby Dassey um, in the middle of the night. Prior to the discovery of Teresa Halbeck's RAV4, uh, you know, vehicle being found on the edge of Stephen Avery and the Avery, I should say, the Avery Salvage Yard property, uh, which uh, everybody remembers from the original Making a Murder series. But, uh, but the fact that Bobby Dassey, of all people, would be sp- seen pushing her vehicle in the middle of the night toward that eventual location, you know, on the salvage air property several hours, about four to six hours before the vehicle actually is identified by Pam Sturm and her daughter definitely raises, you know, a lot of questions. And, and, you know, from Zellner's perspective, it definitely gives her the ammunition to point more definitively to Bobby Dassey as the most logical alternative suspect as far as committing the murder. Because again, Tim, you know, why in the world in the middle of the night when everybody else is sleeping comfortably, including Stephen Avery of all people, you know, why is Bobby out along with the second person um, and, and they're pushing a vehicle, you know, uh, Teresa Halbeck's vehicle, you know, the same person that is missing, had been murdered, you know, and had been, you know, dismembered, you know, why what 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 would motivate him to push her vehicle you know and uh, and why would he even be connected to her vehicle you know to begin with and yet like i said we've had several individuals that have come forward over the last two or three years including one being a reputable newspaper delivery carrier who you know last thing he wanted to do in the world you know was make a name for himself and uh, you know and make waves of all things you know you know pointing to the possibility that uh, that there was an alternative scenario as far as what happened with Teresa Halbeck's murder very true Kathleen Zellner now has been uh representing Stephen Avery 
uh, I think we we cited since 2016 or 2017, and she's been doing it pro bono. She she hasn't been taking any money from Stephen Avery to represent him. What drives her to continue up to this day to keep representing him? What what drives this hope that that he eventually can get an appeal? Um. Basically, she's convinced Tim that that he's innocent, uh, and and she has you know, a lot of years' experience as far as in the wrongful conviction industry. In fact, her first big case was Larry Eiler, you know, a serial murder from uh, Illinois and Indiana that uh, that she realized, uh, you know, when she got stuck with his defense that he was in fact guilty of the crime, and she actually helped law enforcement identify all the people that uh, that he uh, committed the murders of. So, uh, so her so her. Her perspective is that if she believes that somebody's guilty, she doesn't want anything to do with them. She will not help them. She won't get them off on technicality. And she had several meetings and interviews with Stephen Avery. You know, she came away convinced that he was innocent. And also just her study of the case, scrutinization of the case, uh, made her realize that the facts and the version of events that were presented at his trial and the way the evidence came together against him left her definitely convinced that uh, that that wasn't factually how Teresa Hallbuck met her death. So she's just been vigilant. And a lot of her other cases, too, it has taken several years. Uh, Ryan Ferguson's case, uh, um, which was also the sub- subject of a Netflix uh, you know, um, series a couple years ago out of Missouri, um, the murder of a newspaper uh, sports editor um, over in Columbia, Missouri. But um but that case also took her several years um, and several failed appeals until she ultimately uh, was able to win Ryan Ferguson's uh, innocence and uh, and get him out. So uh, um, it certainly has not gone the way she expected, but is kind of talked about the beginning of this, the the t- today's segment. Uh, um, Wisconsin has been very adamant and opposed. It, it appears to me, you know, with the notion of a third series on making a murderer just because of all the negative publicity and attention and humiliation that the series uh, brought to them because uh, um, 49 other states, uh, you know, and lawyers, judges, prosecutors, public defenders, and, uh, you know, and uh, court officials have had a chance to watch how the Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey investigations and trials played out, um, you know, and, uh, and it definitely did not look good, you know, um, in the eyes of the public and on America's justice system. Um, um, and certainly Wisconsin didn't expect that to happen, you know, 10, 15 years later that, uh, that this would all get, uh, you know, dragged back out into the public spotlight. So from my perspective, as I've re- read and studied the, uh, the post-conviction opinions and decisions that were made over the last four or five years by the Sheboygan County judge that had been assigned to Stephen Avery's case, uh, um, Angie uh, Suckowitz, uh, um, um, her opinions oftentimes were just rehashing or regurgitating you know, what the prosecution, uh, the Wisconsin Attorney General's office had pointed out or refuted as far as, you know, um, regarding Bobby Dassey and his role with that vehicle um, to the point where she basically just said that you can't prove 
he may be pushing the vehicle. You know, I'll acknowledge in my ruling that he was pushing the vehicle along with another person, but that doesn't mean that he was actually had the key to her vehicle and had driven it, uh, you know, prior to him pushing the vehicle. So just kind of ridiculous, you know, real head scratching opinions, but that's what she just ruled this past August. And then out of nowhere, uh, which kind of shocked the hell out of me, I was already in the process of working on this book update, Tim, that just out of nowhere, I get a, a text message or a phone call from Zellner just saying that, that Angie Suckowitz just announced that she's getting off the case, you know, after handling this for, you know, seven or eight, nine years. So um, she uh, decided because of, uh, you know, a high, her high volume of caseload that this, you know, that she needed, uh, you know, part ways and, uh, and give the Stephen Avery case up. So that shocked the heck out of me. And I think it also, at least for people that believe in Stephen Avery uh, and, and Brendan Dassey's innocence, uh, um, at least gives them a new outlook on life, uh, one that definitely has uh, a rainbow, you know, um, out in the distance rather than just storm clouds and, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and thunderstorms and, you know, and, and black clouds and, you know, a lot of rain and stuff like that. So at least there's a, you know, the belief, Tim, is that that this new judge, and he is a brand new judge. He just got elected in, in April of this year. It's a newly created bench position for Mantua County. Um, and he also has a background as a Wisconsin state public defender. And he quit his job as a police officer early, you know, after about five or six years as a police officer to pursue a, a career in litigation. So nobody knows how he's going to roll on the case. But the belief is that, hey, he's, he's got to be better than Angie Suckowitz. So we'll see what happens. You know, John, when I read that, um, I said to myself, something's rotten in Denmark that Judge Suckowitz takes an issues a ruling that immediately says up oh, you know because of my case load blah 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 to me that that is the that is the move of someone who says I don't want to recuse myself off the case I want to give a ruling but at the same time I don't want people to dig into my background and try to get me to recuse myself off of a case before I make a ruling so there's something in her background that says you can tie me to something somewhere in this case to get me off the case before I make a ruling. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a ruling. I'm going to get the hell out of here before you find some dirt on me. And then you want an appeal, take it up with somebody else before you find some dirt on me. That's, that's what it, to me, that's what it stinks. Of. Well, and I know from my time working in Wisconsin, you know, on the investigative team for Gannett uh, from well, late 2012 through uh, summer of 17, one of my colleagues uh, that I worked with, Eric Litke, um, on his own, had actually done previous stories just analyzing judges across Wisconsin. And one of the key measures for uh, for measuring competency of a judge um, is how often, you know, the defense lawyers um, asking, you know, for a different judge on a case. And she had a super high um you know, a ratio as far as, you know, defendants and lawyers that just did not feel they could get a fair shake with her or that she doesn't know the law, doesn't know case law. Um, so he had already done stories on her before, you know, before anybody in the world was even paying attention to her, you know, rulings and, and handling of the making a murder of the Stephen Avery case. So I kind of knew that ahead of time that uh, that this was the judge that, uh, I mean, Stephen Avery definitely, you know, um, 
you know, got stuck with the bottom of the barrel as far as, you know, having a judge that at least was open minded, uh, you know, and and you look at her rulings compared to the federal judges, the federal judge um, that that wanted to and almost let Brendan Dassey out of prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, about seven years ago, um, you study his ruling and then you study the ruling in the uh, in the Andy Colburn versus Netflix lawsuit, uh, the ruling that came out earlier this year. And you just you're just blown away as far as that. These are judges that studied the case inside and out. They were not about to be bullied or just, you know, repeating, you know, lines or, you know, or statements that were that were put out there, you know, saying making murder was just, you know, manipulating evidence and, uh, you know, and fabricating evidence and ruining lives and reputations. Uh, um, so you had judges on the federal side that really did a deep dive and analysis Tim, of the case uh, versus her. And, uh, you know, so, uh, so yeah, you're right. Uh, there's probably something there. And, um, you know, from here on out, she's, you know, she's kind of in the, in the background for the most part, uh, you know, and we'll see what happens. Uh, now this new judge, uh, uh, his name is uh, Anthony Lambrick uh, and we'll see what uh, we'll see, uh, you know, what, uh, what, what's in store with him now. That will be interesting to see what happens uh, as far as an appeal goes with uh, Lambrick, that's for sure. want to bring up uh, another special that's out there. I, I know you've seen a few episodes of it. Um, the, convict, the Conviction of a Murderer, I believe is what it's called. Candace Owens uh, put out a, a special on the opposite side uh, when it comes to Stephen Avery. Um, basically falling under the, well, they got the right guy scenario um why is candace owens misguided in what she put out and why did she put out what she put out now what what was the purpose of putting this out and who do you think was behind it was it necessarily candace owens that was behind it or do you think it had other other people behind it i mean there were definitely other people behind it in fact i was kind of surprised in the last six months to a year, if even hearing her name being involved with it, uh, yeah. um, I think they, you know, we're looking for a headline headliner, you know, and a you know prominent person. And she definitely would, you know, fit that, fit that, uh, um, that bill. But uh, no, the, um, the convicting of murder documentary series had been in the works for many, many years. Um, it was basically put together by people that were, that felt embarrassed and humiliated and disagreed, you know, with uh, with making a murder and also the accolades and all the national international attention that it brought to uh, to the two uh, primary uh, um, documentarians that put it together. So so I think jealousy was a key factor, you know, and I also uh, feel that uh, that uh that they wanted a race, you know, kind of get out an eraser and just, you know, take a pencil and, you know, and uh, kind of erase a lot of the memories that people had as far as, you know, of the possibility and probability that there was false evidence that, uh, that, uh, that the trial was stacked against Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey from the, you know, from the outset, uh, more so Stephen Avery, obviously, um, is, was their focus, uh, you know, with, with uh, convicting a murder, but, uh, um, like I said, yeah, it had been in works for several years. The uh, but the the key thing is that a lot of the convicting a murder series got into 
irrelevant miscellaneous facts about Stephen Avery and his youth and, and troubles. And, and that's the thing. I mean, all that stuff is true, but it, none of it was relevant or had anything at all to do with Teresa Halbeck's disappearance. You know, issues about him and other people, you know, getting drunk and uh, high or, you know, and throwing a cat in a, in a, in a, in a, in a bonfire years ago and other aspects of, you know, of late night, um, you know, burglaries of, uh, you know, of local taverns and stealing, you know, the food and, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, um, but, uh, uh, I mean, nobody, nobody says Stephen Avery was a perfect angel growing up. I mean, he definitely, you know, yeah, had issues and, you know, and, and problems, but, um, but like I said, a lot of the, the key components of the Convicting of Murder series really got into, you know, irrelevant uh, uh, material that really had nothing to do, uh, Tim, with, uh, with Teresa Halbeck's uh, actual disappearance of murder. And uh, and I think Candace Owens, from what the limited, you know, that I watched of the series, uh, um, just she just kind of comes in really late in the game, really kind of green and really doesn't know the history of the culture as far as with the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office, as far as that they did have a long-standing history of corruption. And I know in one of the the clips that I saw from her, she's talking about, uh, you know, just um, George Floyd and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and the whole, you know, scenario of, you know, you know, law enforcement, you know, being crooked and, and you know, and uh, just, she just kind of takes a perspective that, you know, that, uh, that, she's not even really open to the idea that there's corruption in the case. She just takes the position that uh, everything's done on the up and up. And if you take that position on the up and up, then you're not going to be questioning things like, you know, like that key being found in Stephen Avery's, you know, bedroom on the floor after police had already done five or six or seven different searches, uh, you yeah. know, and, uh, and, you know, and the whole notion of shaking the, shaking the, uh, the, you know, the, the cabinet drawers and the, and the key falling out of it, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, I hear you there. Um, well, here's here's the the question, and I guess the last question for you today, uh, John, is this: with everything that's gone on and, and said, and in the big fear that's hanging over Manitowoc County right now, is there a realistic a realistic chance that there is making a murder three out there that it could be made? And has there been talk of it that you know of, and, and could it actually happen? Well, I think that uh, at least over the last several years, it had kind of been put on hold uh, because there really was not anything um, noteworthy going on as far as, you know, kind of where the where the next set of uh, um, episodes would take the case. Um, but um, I think I think the, the events over the last year in particular, especially with the, the emergence of, um, you know, Bill Sawinski. I'm sorry, not Bill Sawinski, Tom Sawinski, um, the newspaper carrier, you know, coming forward and identifying Bobby Dassey as pushing the vehicle. Um, I think the the change in the judge in the case um, and uh, and then now um, we'll see what happens as far as Eleanor appealing that ruling, you know, um, to the Court of Appeals. So I would say it seems to me that that now more so than three or four years ago, you know, the possibility is strong stronger that we could see a um definitely a, a making a murder series um three and i think we definitely would see one in the event that this new judge uh, lambrick uh, or the court of appeals uh, or the supreme court tim 
rules in Stephen Avery's favor as far as giving him a new, granting him a new trial or just an evidentiary hearing in the case. So, uh, um, um, so I, I think that I think we'll kind of have to wait and see what happens. But, but as of right now, I would say it's definitely leaning a little bit more so back toward a possibility of a season three than than it, than it had been, you know, six months or even a year ago. Should a even a hearing happen, or or even an appeals uh, an appeals trial happen? Does this does this put egg on Manitowoc County's face? Is this is this kind of the be all end all? And does it tell Manitowoc County that reforms definitely need to happen, or do they continue with business as usual? Yeah, see, I don't know on that one, Tim. That's a good question. Um, I think that, you know, really just a, an ethical and, you know, conscientious judge or, or set of judges on an appeals court really should not be worried about or thinking about, you know, oh, if we rule in Stephen Avery's f- favor because of the volume of questionable evidence or exculpatory information, you know, that uh, that was withheld from, you know, Zellner or you know, his, his original trial lawyers, um, they should just rule, you know, treat him like he was Joe Jones, Jerry Smith, or Tom Johnson, just any other person, rather than analyze the case from the, well, if we rule in his favor, how is season three of Making a Murder going to play itself out? And how are we, you know, how is this, you know, the local courthouse in Mantua going to look, you know, in that, that really shouldn't be a consideration, um, you know, if, if the, if the judges are noble and just, um, so, uh, but obviously we know that not all judges are noble and just, and there certainly have been rulings that have gone against him over the last five or six years that were somewhat surprising given, given the information that Zellner had, had uncovered, you know, again, pointing to, uh, you know, the exculpatory information and the evidence on Bobby Dassey's computer. And then now, most recently, with, uh, you know, finding eyewitnesses that can identify Bobby Dassey as pushing the vehicle um, in the middle of the night, uh, Teresa Hallbuck's vehicle. So um, so we'll have to see what happens. But uh, um, but I would say it's certainly, you know, Stephen Avery's never been in a better position as far as having, you know, a stack of cards as far as, you know, multiple cards to show, you know, the court and the judges as far as here's a piece of evidence, here's multiple pieces of evidence that point to somebody else as being responsible for Teresa Halbeck's disappearance and murder and dismemberment uh, rather than than myself. And, uh, you know, and you would think that with all that information, that should at least get his foot in the door, Tim. Yeah. You know, for an evidentiary hearing, not necessarily a, a trial, but at least for an evidentiary hearing. And then we'll see what would have to happen uh, after Zellner gets a chance to present her side. And uh, and then the prosecution would have a chance to, uh, you know, rebut and or present its own case to a judge. Absolutely. In this case, Judge Labrick, So yeah, Absolutely. The book is Wrecking Crew, Demolishing the Case Against Stephen Avery. It is the fifth anniversary edition, which has a brand new interview with Stephen Avery in it. Uh, it, it comes forward. You, you really bring the heat with this one, John. You have some very, very interesting stuff in it, including that interview with Stephen Avery, some, some interesting new information in it. I encourage everybody to go get it. It's available via Wild Blue Press. We have a link in the description of this program so you can go get that book. John, I want to thank you so much for appearing on the program today. Thank you very much, Tim. It was great to be here.
It was great to have you, my friend. Appreciate you. Uh, folks, it's time now for us to lighten things up a bit. It's time to bring in Beer City Bruiser and time for Dumb Crimes and Stupid Criminals. It's, it's Crayon News Story Time. What happened with this dude, Christ Bearer? I heard he uh, cut his penis off and then jumped off a balcony. Suspect pulls gun from butt, shoots twice at Denver police. What is your emergency? I need help. And what's the problem? I'm too high. You're too high? Yeah. It's that time you've been looking forward to, the time that we've been looking forward to as well. Dumb crime, stupid criminals. In order to do so, we need a co-host. We bring in the co-host with the most, the BCB, the big cuddly bear himself, Beer City Bruiser. Bruiser, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic, Cruiser. How you doing? I had a bit of the co-sell in me there. The bear city yeah, Bruiser. Bruiser, <laughs> how are you? Uh, I actually watched an old rerun of the Flip Wilson show. With with Howard Cosell on it, really? Yeah, <laughs> you. We must have been on the same wavelength because I watched some of the uh, the old, uh, Mrs. Bruiser was asking about the Globetrotters. Yeah, Harlem Globetrotters. So we went back and watched some of the Wild World of Sports with Howard. With Howard Cosell. Because remember, they'd always have the Globetrotters the feature on there. Yeah. Yep. I, so we must have been on the same wavelength this weekend. I don't know what it was. <laughs> yeah, but Howard was a terrible comedic actor. Yeah. He yeah. Was. He read his lines the same way he did a sportscast. <laughs> Very wooden. Uh, yeah, terrible Cosell impression, by the way. But uh, yeah, he was, he was uh, they only featured him in the opening bit and the closing bit because he was so terrible. But yep, it was good to see him. Yeah, because we were, we, were, we got on the Harlem Globetrotters kick. I said, oh, my first experience with them was with Howard Cosell. And she goes, who's that? I said, you don't know <gasps> Howard Cosell. And she said, no. So we went we went down to ABC. It was ABC, right? Wild Water Sports. Yeah. And then the early Monday night football games. And yes. she's like, this is terrible. I go, not for the oh, 80s. <laughs> no. Howard Cosell was the man, especially on Monday night football. Yeah. The only problem is he got in a little bit of trouble. Do you remember, do you remember what uh, one of his main trouble spots was whiskey well that was that was part of it yes <laughs> uh, he, but i think every broadcaster back then was drinking <laughs> he and he and frank gifford liked to drink in the booth along with dandy don meredith um yeah. but he um he said something about uh it was uh tony dorsett and walter payton and people didn't understand where he was coming from they thought it was a racial thing oh okay but he said, he said, uh, look at that little monkey run. And he Ooh, didn't, yeah, and, yeah, and he, yeah, you can't do that, right? Yeah. He, he claimed he didn't mean it racially because he was a good friend of Muhammad Ali. Oh, so he used I have a black friend as to yeah, why he right, was okay right, saying it. Okay, okay. Right, okay. but he, he claimed he didn't mean it in the racial sense. He meant it like you would talk about someone who's quick, fast, you know, but yeah. it, it didn't. It didn't help him. The network. No. The network said you do well. You've you've you're kind of outdated. So they they phased Cosell out. Yeah. Now Cosell's son works for the NFL. Oh really? Okay. Well, that's good. And he appears on uh, Colin Coward's program on a weekly okay. basis, and he's actually quite knowledgeable about the game. Which is good if yeah. you're going to be in that that field. Mm -hmm. That's why I don't like Chris Collinsworth. He is not knowledgeable at all. No. No. Oh. He was horrible. He's the worst. Night. Yeah. Yeah. 
Sunday night football is almost hard to watch. I had to take extra edibles last night just to watch it the other night. <laughs> he just would not get off Lamar Jackson's junk. It's like, yes, Lamar Jackson's good. Stop saying he, look, he can run this way. He can run that way. He can throw the football. No kidding. We've all seen Lamar Jackson play. Call the play that's on the field. If When you guys get time, and, and if you're a football fan, go to the Reddit threads about Chris Collinsworth making his own narratives on Sunday night. They're his story. He does. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's he an lives, idiot. He lives he's in his been, own world. Yeah, yeah, he's been factually proven wrong. Stuff he said on on there has been wrong. Yeah, it, it's funny. It's very funny. Uh, dumb crime, stupid criminals. Boy, do we have a show for you today? Okay, it's it's very interesting. I I hate to point the the um, the spotlight back at your industry bruiser, but I have a very interesting story to open up. Dumb crime, stupid criminals today. Is it the Liv Morgan story? Yes, it is. Ah, good for her. Yeah, I, I figured I'd, uh, I'd I'd point it out because somebody's coming back to WWE soon. Oh yeah, she kind of busted herself. She made yeah. her own story in Orlando because yeah. everybody thought she was back home on the farm. Turns out, which she was, she was on the farm, but she was going to the performance center to get back in ring shape. Yeah, yeah. So she kind of outed herself. Uh, she's yeah. getting back in ring shape, evidently, to get back maybe by Rumble. Hopefully, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll start out with that. WWE wrestler Liv Morgan was arrested during a Florida traffic stop and faces marijuana possession charges. Her real name is Gianna Daddio, which is a better name than I think Liv Morgan is. Yeah, I don't know why they changed her name. I, like I've met her a couple times, and, yeah. and she pitched um, her first name just as Giovanna, and they said no. They said she doesn't look Italian enough. What? <laughs> that was the whole thing. She's a Jersey girl. Come on. Yeah, yeah. And and she would have been if they would have ended up keeping Enzo, which they didn't, obviously. Right. Um, but if you would have paired her with that whole. That whole well, that was tribe. the original plan, was her going with them. There's a couple NXT episodes you can watch where she's with them. Yeah, and that's I when mean, she's doing the I live or whatever, that Jersey girl thing. Yeah, yeah, that, that would have been amazing. Uh, she was arrested near a, a private housing facility called The Villages, which is kind of a posh and Tony area of Orlando. And I'm assuming that's where a lot of the WWE superstars live. I think so, yeah. Because um, it's close to the Performance Center, but it's it's... I don't want to say it's a gated community, but it's real hard to get into unless you know somebody. Yeah. She was arrested Thursday in Central Florida, accused of felony marijuana possession, according to New Six partner WJXT. Uh, (laughs) 29-year-old Daddio, which I love the last name, by the way. I just think it's the greatest last name ever, was arrested after she was seen erratically driving her Jeep near the Villages. That's according to Villages News. They have their own news department. They have their own news department. Look at that. That's a bougie little neighborhood. That is. A Sumter County Sheriff's deputy said they saw Daddio cross over street lines several times, according to an arrest report obtained by Villages News, and smelled marijuana when they got close to her Jeep. She was smoking at a drive and driving in the smoking. And it's funny. I don't know if you've seen the, the um, there's a meme of her already, but there's a couple comments on, on the TMZ report where they say she was in Green Bay the week before because she was at the Packers game yeah, um, supporting the Packers. And they said, oh, she must have taken a little trip to Michigan where it's legal <laughs> recreationally. Because it's not legal in Florida. It's not legal in Wisconsin. And I don't think it's legal where her farm is. 
Well, here's the interesting. There's an interesting little thing at the end of the story I'll throw at you here because this is quite popular in Florida. So something tells me there was a side trip while she was there or while she's there. Uh, the deputy said they found marijuana in a pink fuzzy bag in the vehicle. That's very uh, East Coast Jersey-like. Yeah. Uh, and vape pen containing an oil-like substance, which you can get in a lot of different areas of the country. She was booked, and probably in Michigan, that little side trip you're talking about. Yep. Uh, she was booked at the Sumter County Detention Center and released after posing $3,000 bond. The wrestler who said she lives in Spring Hill faces charges of marijuana possession, not more than 20 grams, that's a little much, and possession of a synthetic, synthetic cannabinoid. Now, Florida is known for synth marijuana. Yeah, that's the Delta 8 or whatever, Delta 9. Yeah, they also call it cat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it is plentiful down there. In fact, we do a lot of stories of people who get high on cat and go nuts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The other thing is it's not detectable by drug tests at WWE. Well, now, WWE did their drug test, and they allow marijuana now. They do. They, they do. do. But yep, they, if you they wanna, incorporated that. If you want to come up clean... You do this. You do this synth marijuana, right? Yeah, yeah. But they realize that with their drug testing, that guys do the marijuana instead of doing the opioids. They do the THC or the CBD because even if it's CBD, you still test positive for THC because CBD still has THC in it. Yes, it has a small amount. Yeah. Yep. So you'll still test like we did with the Lumi gummies. They still test positive. Yeah. So WWE just got rid of it. Said THC is legal. You, you know, you can have that in your system. We get it. We're more worried about the steroids and the opioids and the, and, and all that. So, and as far as I know, and from my sources within, she's not in any trouble with WWE. Nor should she should be. Uh, although, you know, you have to, you might have to get the little slap on the wrist for driving while. Well, we don't know if she was impaired. Mm, the way it sounds from this article she was well. She had the possession charges, but they were smelling it while she was driving. So, yeah, you know whether they whether they drew blood at that time or not, it's unknown. They haven't said. Right. So I think they're going to wait for that to come out. I, she'll she'll get a slap on the wrist if she gets a DUI, but yeah. she's not losing her job over this. No, 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 no. By all means, this isn't no. like nineteen what eighty seven when hacksaw was caught with iron chic right, right. <laughs> in new york and they were in the middle of a feud you know right and keep in mind folks that it's not it's not vince mcmahon's company anymore this is a this is a whole new company and a whole new wwe so it'll be interesting to see how they tackle this too yeah that's that's the curious thing because there's still changes going on i know the wellness policy at wwe enforced after the benoit tragedy is still in effect but i know they want to change it because they want to make it universal between the wwe superstars and the ufc superstars mm -hmm. so that way it's just one test given to everybody instead of okay we have to test X, Y, Z for the WWE guys and, you know, ABC for the UFC guys. Yeah. So it's a, it's a little different time over there now. So it's kind of an interesting little deal. So it'll be interesting how this all plays out. I just know from the, the people that I've talked to, she, she's not any, she's not in the doghouse. She's not in trouble. You know, she's, she's got to deal with the, the court issues on her own, but. Other than that, as far as a WWE stance, I don't think she's in any trouble. Interesting. I just thought it was interesting that she outed her return. Yeah. 
Yeah, I thought that was uh, interesting indeed. Um, because people have been asking, well, where is she? Shouldn't she be back soon? And everybody kept talking about, well, when is she coming back? Are we going to see her on Raw this week? Are we going to see her on SmackDown? Are we going to see her here, there? When is she going to make this appearance? And everybody thought, well, Royal Rumble. She's getting ready, folks. Yeah. yeah. And, and everyone's got to realize, too, when you come back, it, it's, for instance, I got cleared from my doctor to return to the ring in um, September. But my actual return to the ring was until November, and that's because I needed that two months to get into a, a school, get into the ring, to knock off what we call ring rust, to build back up my cardio, to get back into a shape where I would be presentable to the fans, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so she's might have been cleared for a while, but like you just said, she owned herself because she's in Orlando, and that's where their performance center is, and that's where the rings are. Yep. With the old guys, like the legends – like an Undertaker, a Shawn Michaels, they would they would ship them a ring. Yeah, yeah. And then you could have the ring for two months to, to work, and then you make your return. You get the you know you give the ring back. I think the Undertaker they just perm, he permanently has a ring, I believe. And they'd send you a guy too. I mean, you'd you'd have Doctor uh, Tom Pritchard would yeah. go. Yep, yep. Or um, I know when Brock Lesnar was coming back, a friend of ours, um, Joe Henning, he was the yep. the guy. Yep. So he would go. He would go train with Brock, and yep, it was kept on the hush. Yep, so, yeah. and you're getting paid the whole time. That's right. It's kind of a nice gig if you can get it. That's for sure. I, would, I in fact, was um when Ace Steel was there for a little bit after he tore his ACL. They sent them the Harleys, and I was the guy that Ace trusted to get in the ring. So I was in in the ring with Ace Steel almost every day, rehabbing his knee so he could make the return to uh um. Well, it was OVW at the time. Oh, wow. Well, there you go. Yeah. There yeah. you go. Interesting. Interesting indeed. Let's move on. Here's a, here's a guy who will never pose shirtless in a ring, Bruiser. <laughs> okay. Turns out a New York City mobster who posed shirtless in a pool while on the lam has no regrets about a damning photo at his sentencing. Oh. You know, you got to take time for yourself when you're on the lam. I guess, you know, there's there's uh, there's so much stress with worrying what's around the corner and who's coming at you. Is that person looking at you funny? You just, you just got de-stress. Yeah, well, you know, there's also, uh, you could buy a weight set, too, you know. You could <laughs> you maybe lay off the gabagool, you know. You could, you know, there's, there's other things, you know. Uh, the reputed city mafioso who infamously posed for the camera shirtless. I have a picture here for you, Bruiser, so you can get an idea of uh, just how how buff this guy is. Let me see. I'm going to get rid of uh, the video there so you can see him in his glory. There he is. I don't think he's so bad. Oh, gosh. No, no. But he was ashamed of this photo. Well, I would be too. Would you say he's dad bod extra? I would say he's diabetic number two. (laughs) (laughs) He, you know what though? He looks like when I picture a mobster in my head, he, he's very much, he has a mobster body. He's Tony Soprano. Yeah. With a few extra parts. He's he's a retired Tony Soprano. Okay. There you go. That's a good way to put him. Uh, the reported city mafioso who infamously posed for the camera shirtless in a swimming pool. Well, (laughs) That was his first problem. Well, on the lamb said Tuesday, he has no regrets about the photo, even though it helped him or put him in prison. 
alleged Colombo crime family mobster, 68-year-old Ralph DiMatteo, was sentenced to three years behind bars by Brooklyn federal judge Hector Gonzalez after pleading guilty to extortion, conspiracy, and money laundering from 2020 to 2021 for threatening a union official in July. When asked after sentencing if he had any second thoughts about posing for the camera while shirtless in a pool in Florida, DiMatteo, wearing a charcoal suit with sneakers, he's a fashionable one, scoffed. Of course he did. Oh, of course. He said, why? It was a great picture. Deadpan DiMatteo, who flaunts his burly, hairy chest in the snap. I'll give him this. He has a nice, hairy chest. He does. And he's got the, the gold necklace. He's got the pinky ring. I want to know what the guy in the background's thinking. Uh, no idea. He was. He, he had his eyes closed. He kind of looks like Ralph Cifaretto. <laughs> He's like got, he's got the yeah. white mane. He's got his eyes up. You know, he's getting a little sun. He's getting a little vitamin D there. Um, <laughs> the reputed wise guy who prosecutors say was the Klan's consigliere had flown to the Sunshine State a day before federal prosecutors charged 13 co-defendants with the major crimes related to the infiltration of a Queens labor union. But DiMatteo's cover was blown after his son posted the pool photo to Twitter where the alleged mobster appears shirtless and half submerged in a swimming pool with a gold crucifix hanging from his neck. I got to tell you, this thing looks like it's worth a lot of money too. So they don't, they don't practice and and running from the law. Don't post on social media. Like, I mean, that's (laughs) my head. That's number one. Like, Hey, all right, I'm running from the law. I'm not running far. I'm only going to Florida. Yeah. But, But no pictures. Don't post anything online. You yeah. have no idea where I am. Yeah, keep, That's the first thing I'm doing. Hey, Junior, here's the deal. Keep it off the internets, all right? He's like, sure <laughs> yeah. thing, Pop. I ain't going to put it on the internets. No problem. Hey, how about a twist? I'm going to put it on Twitter. How's, it, how's that sound? Yeah, He's sure. Like, go to Twitter. No one, no one talks on Twitter. Go ahead. That's right. Please don't look at Twitter. Just don't put it on the internet. You can put it on the Twitter. I don't care. Just don't put it on the internet. <laughs> so sure enough, he does, and he gets busted. Uh, by the way, he did surrender a day later. DiMatteo's lawyer, Gerald McMahon, (laughs) no relation, had asked the judge to be lenient with his client's sentencing, in part because DiMatteo is old-schooled and that he was ready to take the blame. And he doesn't, from the judging of that picture, doesn't have a lot of time left on the surface. (laughs) No, 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 no. He's he's lived a good life. Mr. DiMatteo did wrong, McMahon said. He took a plea. He's taking his medicine. He wants it to be on him. He's doing his time. McMahon uh, said DiMatteo will hopefully be aging out from his alleged crime family business, but prosecutors who were seeking a sentence of 46 months in prison weren't convinced the uh, reputed wise guy was going to stop from his ways. So do I got this right there saying just let him retire from the mob? (laughs) He won't do this anymore? Yeah, just let him age out. Just let him uh, go into retirement uh, softly. Like he's close to retirement. Let him get his 401k. And then, you know, he'll be good. Yeah, just let him retire to Florida. He'll be be nice and uh, tanned. (laughs) What a great defense team. Yeah. Uh, Being a member of the Colombo crime family is a lifetime oath. Brooklyn federal prosecutor Michael Gibaldi. Uh, adding that aging out won't happen. <laughs> yeah, he's, you don't retire from the mob. Yeah, he's like, we think we know how this thing works. DiMatteo, known as number three by other Colombo clan members, was indicted along with other reputed Colombo leaders, including then-boss Andrew Mush Russo. The nicknames aren't as good as they used to be. 
No, no. Mush. Yeah. You know, it used to be the Hitman. It used to be uh, Knuckles. Two-tone. Yeah, two-tone Knuckles. Uh, you know, the jawbreaker. Yeah, fingers, the jawbreaker. Mush doesn't quite do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then boss Andrew Mush Russo, who died in April of 2022. That's why they call him Mush, evidently, because he's bone soup right now. Uh, he died while ar- awaiting trial, by the way. And alleged Colombo underboss Benjamin the Claw Castellazzo. There you go. The Claw. See, the Claw. Yeah. Yeah. Is the mob still a thing in, it, 20, in the 2000s? It is, but it isn't as, as uh, prevalent. I was going to say, you don't. Yeah. It's not as impressive as it used to be. It still works the unions, though. It does. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because when you hear the name like John Gotti, you're like, oh, my gosh, like that's a mobster. You hear Mush, and you're like, Gotti. Ooh. Gotti was the last big one. He was the yeah. last big boss. Yeah. Uh, so Benjamin the Clock Castellazzo pleaded guilty earlier this year. DiMatteo worked together with reputed Colombo crime family captain Vincent Rick. Rick, Rick, I'm sorry, Ricky, Ricciardo. There we go. Uh, to collect monthly payments of only twenty six hundred dollars from the union official. That's it. That's it. Well, you know, we're in, we're in a recession. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, only identified as John Doe number one during the nineteen year scheme, according to prosecutors. I almost feel like they should let him go. I mean, that's that's not much. No, uh, that's a slap on the wrist. It is. Ricky Ardo pleaded guilty and is scheduled to be sentenced on January tenth. The judge ordered Di Matteo to pay two hundred eighty thousand eight hundred ninety dollars in restitution to the victim of the case and allowed him to be or to surrender rather on January fifteenth. The mob ain't what it used to be. No, it's not. Yeah. It is not. Can you imagine this guy right here, Bruiser, between you, me, and the and the listeners, this guy right here going, give me my $2,600. You, you know what? <laughs> I hate to say this, but I can picture you and I, we're out at an Italian restaurant coming up with a format for the show, and that's the guy that owns the restaurant. Yeah. Hey, yeah. how's the pasta? How's the, but Cruiser, how's that pasta treating you? Is it good? You know, get Cruiser some more pasta. Yeah, the gravy, the gravy today, I got to tell you, it's no good. It's no good. It's a little salty. Could be better. Could be better. Hey, by the way, uh, here's $10. That's, uh, oh, no, you know, I'm going to bump it to $26. That's one hundredth of what you make on the mob side of this deal. Yeah. I feel a little sorry for you these days. Just saying. Uh, by the way, we, we got a lot of stories from listeners this week. I'm just going to give you a quick rundown of uh, who, who contributed this week. I feel like this is the, uh, this is the pledge drive for PBS now. <laughs> uh, I want to say thank you to Jim McKeeman, who contributed. Tony, of course, came through big this week. Uh, Brandon came through big this week. And, of course, Eric came through big this week, as well as Tom and, uh, you know, Tom comes through big as well. Um, yeah. And uh, all the boys uh, coming through big this week. So I want to thank you guys. Uh, this one, <laughs> this one uh, is from Minnesota and is unusual, yes. You know, we do a lot of MRIs up here. We're a big medical communi- community. Yeah, you are. You know, yeah. We have the Mayo Clinic up there. Yeah, we got the Mayo up here, University of Minnesota. Um, the one thing they never tell us, they don't have to tell us, please don't bring your firearm in with you in the MRI machine. <laughs> yeah, you don't want a, a metal gun by your your magnetic, giant magnetic tube. <laughs> yeah, they, they probably should post a sign now 
uh, especially in Minneapolis, <laughs> yeah. leave your weapon outside the MRI tube or maybe leave it outside the room. A newly filed report by the Food and Drug Administration describes an incident. Actually, this isn't a Wisconsin hospital. It was just just outside of Minneapolis where a woman was shot in the buttocks after bringing a gun into a room with an MRI machine. <laughs> Whoops. According to the FDA, the 57-year-old woman was... <laughs> had brought the concealed handgun into the room. The gun was attracted to the magnet of the MRI and filed a single round. Oh, definitely, yeah. <laughs> Which then hit her in the right buttock. Good, she deserves it. Wow. Why do you need a gun in a hospital? Uh, That's the last place you need a gun. Because somebody else could be packing? Sure, sure. I don't know. Uh, the injury was small and superficial, and she was healing well shortly afterwards. Well, thank Jesus for that. Well, she needed an MRI to find out how deep it went. She's right there. That's true, yeah. Uh, she had been through a screening process in which she was asked if she had any objects containing iron. So then, of course, she answered no to all questions. <laughs> Never heard the phrase packing iron? <laughs> yeah, I guess not. Uh, the incident. Oh, no, my gun, my gun's steel. I'm good. <laughs> oh, yeah. Steel gun. I'm packing steel, not iron. Let's go. Yeah. Let's, let's fire up the uh, the MRI machine. Let's uh, let's do this. I'm bougie. Look at this gun. Come on. <laughs> the incident happened back in June, but was just recently reported to the FDA, evidently out of embarrassment. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> my God. Uh, speaking of shooting people in the lower regions, we go to Florida because why not? Yeah, let's go. Yeah. A DeBerry man is accused of shooting his neighbor in the leg with a shotgun. Well, that happens. Uh, you know, you neighborly stuff in Florida. You know, you come over to borrow a cup of sugar, and if they don't have it, you shoot them in the leg. <laughs> it's just how it works in Florida. I don't have it? a full cup. I only have a half cup. Well, I got to shoot you in the leg. Which one do you want? Right or left? Come on. Well, my Kool-Aid's not going to taste the same, but maybe it will with your sweet, sweet blood. Uh, 69 year old John Baker faces charges of aggravated battery with a deadly weapon. We go to DeBerry, Florida, where a 69 year old DeBerry man was arrested after he shot another man in the leg with a shotgun. This, according to the Volusia County Sheriff's Office, deputies say they responded to the shooting at 9 Cunningham Road shortly after 6 p.m. last week. Upon arrival, John Baker told deputies he shot the victim in the leg with a shotgun. According to a news release, deputies found the victim, a 45-year-old man, lying at the end of the road, bleeding from a shotgun wound to his ankle. Now that would hurt. Ow. Right in the ankle. Ow. Yeah. I'm thinking thigh. Thigh's okay with an ankle. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. The man who lives nearby told deputies that he was searching the area for a bike that has been repeatedly stolen out of his yard. Not a good reason to shoot somebody. Yeah. And what is what everyone that's shooting people are old. This guy's 69, you had a 57 year old and bringing a gun in the hospital. Why do the old people feel they need to be armed right now? Probably because they can't fight. You know, Probably. I mean, yeah, I mean, they're going to get beat up if they try and put the Dukes up. So they're just like, you know what? I'm bringing this gun. They're, they're taken from what is that, Indiana Jones and the, yes. the Lost Ark where the guy has the sword? Wah, wah, wah. Boom. Boom. <laughs> you settle it real quick, I guess. I don't know. Deputies said while searching for the bike, the victim found a dirt path and ended up near an RV at 9 Cunningham Road where Baker came out with a shotgun. <laughs> According to the release, the man said Baker accused him of vandalizing or burglarizing his property and began to chase him. The victim said he ran away in fear with Baker in pursuit. 
Baker told deputies that he shot the victim because he heard him trying to break into his RV. But deputies found the shotgun shell about 150 yards away from the RV. They also noted that there were no signs of an attempted break-in or any recent damage to the RV. So it was all in this guy's head, Bruiser. I bet you the guy was just knocking to say, hey, did you see this bike? And the old guy went, oh, get off my lawn! Get off my lawn! (laughs) Deputies said Baker faces charges of aggravated battery with a deadly weapon. He was booked overnight at the Volusia County Branch Jail. Good. So there's that. I found I found the perfect gang for Kirk Cousins to join in the offseason. Oh, it's the Achilles blown out gang. <laughs> yes, the blown out Achilles gang. <laughs> Him and Aaron Rodgers. Should he decide to turn to a life of crime? Uh, I think he would I've, be the worst. You think he's a bad quarterback. Imagine him as a criminal. He'd turn himself in every time. He'd just have to have his wife do everything. Yes. And then him take credit. She'd have to she'd have to rob Coles on her own. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, he'd never go with. He'd have a guilty conscience. Uh, we go to Colorado, Bruiser, where Colorado thieves ask for a lesser charge because the items they stole were on sale. <laughs> That's smart. Uh we were stealing clearance items. Can we get a clearance sentence? <laughs> <laughs> A pair of thieves from Colorado had a bold argument for why they should get a lesser charge. I have to thank our listeners again for this story as well. The items they stole were on sale. You know, I, I got to give them credit. I wouldn't have thought of that. That's amazing. I would have. <laughs> 50 year now, normally a sentence 25 years of life, but can we do, you know, since it's on sale, can we cut that down to 15? Huh? Yeah. yeah. Let's, uh, let's do 12, shall we? Because uh, really, these were clearance items, Your Honor, and nobody was going to buy them. <laughs> 50-year-old Michael Green and 37-year-old Byron Bolden were formally sentenced this month after receiving convictions for retail theft at a Kohl's department store in Parker, Colorado. Of course. It's been rumored that that's where old Kirk and Julie went when they played the Denver Broncos. The department store dubbed the pair the KitchenAid Mixer Crew. <laughs> you know, oh. Ju- you know Julie's in that game, right? Yeah, she is. Yeah, she is. Uh, due to their alleged association with other retail thefts. So they're the KitchenAid Mixer Crew. <laughs> That's like being up there with the Wet Bandit Crew. <laughs> would, would you just automatically go run into a brick wall if you were part of the KitchenAid Mixer Crew? I would, because if I get sent to prison... And someone finds out I'm part of that crew, I'm going to have to bake a really good cake. (laughs) (laughs) Or I'm going to let everybody down. I got cred here. You know what they're going to say? They're going to say, well, if you bake a cake, I'm sure you toss a good salad. (laughs) You know? Uh, Both men were arrested after being identified from surveillance footage. Most notably, defense lawyers for the two men suggested to a jury that their client should only face a lesser misdemeanor charge because some of the items they stole were being offered on sale, quote unquote, according to the district attorney's office presiding over the case. That's why they waited till after Black Friday. That's why they waited for the holidays. That's right. That's right. Yep. The argument was focused on the Colorado law, which stipulates theft under $2,000 as a misdemeanor offense, with theft between $2,000 and $5,000 classified as a Class 6 felony. The documented value is $1,094.98, but we're playing the prices right here, Bruiser. I can see Drew Carey in the courtroom. (laughs) (laughs) The actual retail price is... 
is less than that because it was on sale. <laughs> Just because an item is on sale doesn't mean it's free to steal. And these defendants now get to think about this lesson in jail and prison. The district attorney, John Kellner, said in a press release, Retailers in our community are fed up with theft, and my office will actively prosecute these offenders. You go, Kellner. Some of those prices are steals. We got a really good song. Uh, I'm going to the Packer-Carolina game coming up. Yeah? And we got our tickets for a steal. Like, I feel, I felt bad buying these tickets from this guy. What was it, like nine bucks? No. We got club seats. Yeah. Silver club seats. Five bucks? <laughs> no. Two Silver? Bucks. Now, think about it. This is with the free parking, mm-hmm. special entrance, covered seating, X to three inches in each seat. You know, a person comes and talks to you. Normally, they range. Normally, one seat is 750 bucks for just one of these seats. Two dollars. I got, I got <laughs> both for 300 bucks. Really? Both seats. Wow. <laughs> I felt so bad. That's not even half price of one. Wow. <laughs> That's more than buy one, get one. Like I, I should probably go to jail and have Drew Carey standing there next to me. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's retail theft right there. Holy cow. But it's the Panthers. The only reason we're going is the Packers are there, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, but still. And that's yeah. it's not a guaranteed victory either. The Falcons fell yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I blame weather for that. It was nasty out here. But still, yeah. I'm just I'm, How nasty was it in, in Carolina? Oh, it was bad. It was it was wet. Well, wet and windy and cold. It was sixty and windy? <laughs> no, it was forty five windy and rainy. Oh, forty five. I mean right now we're at forty eight, but it's sunny. We're still in a drought. Ask me how cold it is in Minneapolis. Right now. <laughs> how cold is it in Minneapolis, there, Cruiser? It's 15 degrees. <laughs> it was cold in Carolina for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah, that's why they. That's why Atlanta couldn't play. <laughs> Could be they just had a crappy day. Atlanta couldn't play because it was 45 and windy. Oh, oh, oh you poor babies. Oh, anyways. But anyways, they, the had, story, they yeah. had less than 1,000 people at the stadium yesterday. Tickets were going for as low as five bucks. Uh, less than 1,000 people? Yep. You can get tickets for five bucks. Whoa. It's yep. going to be like that pretty soon in Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Um, yeah, we'll be able to see that Lions game for about $2. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyways, we're talking bargains at Kohl's. Um, so this uh, John Kellner, the district attorney, claims that retail theft is reportedly rising in the U.S. in recent years, but many reports relied on faulty data. The National Retail Federation recently retracted a claim that organized retail crime accounted for nearly half of the shopping industry's $94.5 billion losses due to shrink in 2021. It was up by 26.5%. Retailers such as Walgreens have admitted exaggerating the issue of shrinkage. Yeah, there aren't a lot of people stealing from Walgreens. No. You can't steal a lot of penny candy and, and $2 sunglasses. 
You know what I'm all the good stuff's behind plexiglass and locked up and all that. That's right. Uh, which includes all inventory lost due to theft, fraud, or damage. Both Green and Bolden were convicted of felony theft. Green was sentenced to 15 months in prison. Bolden was sentenced to days in jail with credit for time served and 18 months of probation. Coles did not immediately respond to a request for comment, although they said they'll make up the profit with two shopping trips by the cousins. There you go. <laughs> We called in our champion. That's right. He's on the bench for the Vikings, but he's in full play for us. <laughs> we don't give him Cole's cash because we're losing profit that way. Just saying. <laughs> Let's move on. Two suspects are in custody after a getaway vehicle is stolen during a robbery at a check cashing business in Commerce City. <laughs> yes, I got this one from a listener, too. <laughs> okay, robbery, could get away, could get away vehicle. Okay, I'm on, I'm on board. This is great. Yeah. This is karma. Yeah, it is. And, and that's <laughs> exactly what it is. Whoever, whatever arresting officer this is, if they, if, and I don't know the story, you're going to read it in a second. Mm -hmm. But if if they arrest these people, that officer is the luckiest officer in the world for solving two crimes at once. Yeah, he is right. <laughs> the Commerce City Police Department says two suspects are in custody, while one remains on the loose after a robbery was reported at a check cashing business. The department says around 11 a.m. on Saturday, three masked men robbed the high-low check cashing in the 7200 block of Monaco Street, and that's when officers arrived on the scene and infiltrated the business. Officers reportedly chased down and arrested two of the three suspects involved in the incident. There were also no reported injuries. It was also reported that the group of suspects robbed the business. A fourth criminal stole their getaway vehicle, which is believed to be already stolen. <laughs> I don't know how you classify that, but... All I know is when I'm getting that car back, I'm selling it really quick because <laughs> it was stolen right. twice. Uh, in baseball, that's a double steal. Yeah. Yeah, that's all I know. The department has yet to release a description of the vehicle, probably because they can't find it. Anyone with additional information on the incident is encouraged to contact Detective Garcia, who's sitting there stumped at 303-227-7147. Like I said, that's the luckiest cop in the world. He just has crimes coming to him. It's kind of funny. <laughs> Bruiser, I know you have a way of taking care of the pups. Yes. A lot of times when we're recording, you put them in cages. Oh, no, they're, they're free in the house. I'm, I'm in an office. That's a lot more freer than some University of Florida scientists take care of their kids. <laughs> when they're well, at work. I'd, I'd rather put my kids in there sometimes than the pups. <laughs> well, that's what these scientists did when they went to work. They put their kids in cages. Oh, Probably okay. not the best form of daycare. No. No. Uh, you heard me right, folks. Some University of Florida scientists are arrested after allegedly putting their kids in cages while they went to work. You don't do that. No. Don't do that at all. That's that's not good parenting. I don't know if they know that or not. Uh, Florida police said the children were six and two years old. Yeah, you definitely don't do that with that age. No. Two scientists who work at the University of Florida were arrested Friday after allegedly putting their kids in cages while they went to work. Well, they can go to a cage now. Yeah, exactly. 35-year-old Dustin Huff and 31-year-old Yuri Z were accused by the Gainesville Police Department of leaving their children home in small cages while they were at work. My God. 
The couple allegedly showed police the homemade cages as if it were all normal when officers searched their property. It's not normal. No, no. This uh, is where you need a license to be a parent. I think so, yeah. I'm not used to walking in and seeing a cage where children are kept at night and, of course, went home alone, said Gainesville Police Sergeant John Pandick. I would be shocked. Yeah. According to the Miami Herald, the couple sometimes worked overnight hours. The cage, according to the outlet, consists of a large, unsanded wooden enclosure made of pressure-treated two-by-fours that appeared to be a makeshift cage, an arrest report stated. One of the children allegedly told police he would sometimes be in the cage from the time he came home from school until he had to leave the following morning at 7 a.m. What? Yeah. Come on. That's just terrible. One of the children told a school employee that he didn't want to go home as he'd be put in a cage by his parents. Yeah, I, I, I never want to go home. Where was the school in this? Yeah, why did the school raise alarms and call the police? Officials at the University of Florida placed the couple on administrative leave. They should have probably done a little more than that. Uh, they were charged with aggravated child abuse and child neglect. The children ages six and two were placed in the custody of vetted family members. Make sure they don't have cages. Yeah, yeah, please. Make sure that you do that before you give them to family members. Fox News Digital reached out to the University of Florida for comment. Uh, they have not gotten any as of yet. Let me show you a picture of these two bumbleheads. They supposedly are smart enough to be scientists at the University of Florida. Hey, you can be book smart, not street smart. Like I said, you need, you need a license to be a... And they're scientists. Why wouldn't you bring your kids with you to at least a daycare at the lab or bring them to work with you so they can learn something? Like, there's not a lot of scientists in the world. No. I, you, you should at least be smart enough to find a daycare. Yeah. You I, and I'm sure whatever lab they work in probably has an on-site daycare. Who, who goes, I know, let's just put them in cages. Idiots. Like I said, I don't like put my dogs in cages. I do when I leave the house for long periods of time. But as soon as I'm back, I take them out and play with them, let them know they're good. You know what I mean? Like, it's not a punishment. It's just right. I don't want my house torn up. Yeah. But with my children, like, six and two, like, I'd take them. We, we had a daycare we took them to. Yeah. And if I couldn't do it, I'd call my sister or, you know, call a relative. Unbelievable. Let's move on. Uh, I'm sure there have been a few people who collect Pokemon cards that you've wanted to beat mercilessly about the head and shoulders. <laughs> Everybody that collects Pokemon no, cards. No, no, come oh, on. Come I on, hate Brizzy. Pokemon. No, no. My brother collects Pokemon cards. I mean, I've, oh. times I've wanted to beat him mercilessly about the head and shoulders. but eh. Pokemon fans are worse than Philadelphia Eagle fans. No, come or on. Bruiser, come fans. on now. Come on now. Actually, Chicago I, Cub fans. I, I, when I was managing Starlog, I, I met a, quite a few Pokemon fans that were quite nice. Oh, the worst yeah. fandom out there. They're they're pretty. They're shocked if you don't know a Pokemon. I'm but sorry, I don't. Pokemon was beyond my. It started after I, I had already grown up and it was gone, and it came before my kids got into stuff. So. Now, Magic the Gathering fans are beatable, not the not the Pokemon I fans. put them both in a bag and hit them against a tree. Oh, come on, Bruiser! No, no, it's just, it's a... Uh, yeah. But, a anywho, uh, a man is accused of stealing Pokemon cards and then beaten by a Westerville officer during an arrest. 
Good. No, no, not good. Not good, Bruiser. We don't encourage officers beating stuff. Where, where's this Pokemon coming to save them there, huh? <laughs> Mr. Charizard, Pika, Likachu, Squirtle, whatever. Hey, you know quite a few of them for not liking them. Uh, that's because I was forced to. <laughs> Ask me anymore. I know, I know Char... Char Charizard? Charizard? Yep, Charizard. You, may, I know you name Pikachu. Squirtle. Yep, you know you, you know Pikachu. Yep. I know Squirtle. Yep. And the only reason I know Squirtle is because it was shown to me in a pornographic way. Wow. <laughs> uh, and then there's the Pokeball, right? You yeah, put them yeah, in your po- testicles or something like that? No, you don't put them in your testicles. That's, what you, <laughs> that's how you catch them. You, you catch them in a Pokeball. Yeah. So you enslave these things. No, I'm no, supposed to be excited for people no, enslaving it's, it's free like, animals. No, it's like it's like their little home, and then you unleash them when it's time to battle. Do you know who one of the keepers so, is? So I am I am capturing these things from their wild life. No, and, no, no, and no, I'm no. imprisoning them. No, and it's forcing a, them to fight. No, 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 it's other a, ones. No, 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 it's a symbiotic relationship. It's like it's like. <laughs> It's not master it servant. Like a it's master like, and slave relationship no, to me. It's like it sounds friends. like Roman times all over. No, again. no, it's like friends. You're, you're nice friends. I don't make my friends fight. I don't keep them in a ball. <laughs> no, 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 no. The ball is their home. I'm going to post on social media just to get the backlash. <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> no. My thoughts on yeah, yeah. This is I'm gonna. I feel like stirring oh, something up no. online. First, you first you're warring against foreign nations, and now you want to you want to. I'm not warring against foreign. <laughs> I'm warring against slavery. You're going into the wild because Pokemon Go was a big thing during the pandemic. I actually, I have a friend who owns a game store. So I, I have a friend that works at a game store, mm-hmm. and, and you know, cool. They make the money on Pokemon, yeah. but when you come when you come down to it, that's mm-hmm. to the fire. You're enslaving these things and forcing them to fight a war they don't want to fight. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> like, they're probably in their Pokeball going, please don't choose me, please don't choose me, please don't choose me. <laughs> no. And then they get released. I choose you. No! <laughs> and it's and if I remember correctly, it's, it's like a survive. It's to death, right? They fight to the death. I don't know if it's to the death every time. I I I can't speak for. I don't know. You can't speak for the slave owners. No, not slave owners. No, <laughs> Ash is not a slave owner. He's a he's a Pokemon master. Not a master. No, a not master. even a master. No, I, I, not a master. Not a master. A yeah, Pokemon friend. Sure, sure, mm-hmm. sure, sure, sure. I've said too much. Anyway, let's get back to the story. A video was captured Sunday night showing a uh, Westerville police officer or officers beating and tasing a suspect in a theft involving Pokemon cards. Uh, The incident began at 1028 p.m. when an employee at the Meyer at 100 Polaris Parkway reported a theft in progress, according to a red-acted Westerville Division of Police report. The suspect is 35 years old, by the way, 35-year-old Ernest Fields. He was accused of bagging up seven. Oh my gosh, six hundred and seventy nine dollars and fifty nine cents worth of Pokemon cards. That guy needs to get a job. <laughs> and trying to remove security tags on the products and ignoring a manager's attempt to stop him from leaving the store. After exiting the mire, the manager told the Westerville police that Fields got in front in the front passenger seat of a red Chevrolet Impala 
in the parking lot, according to the report. An officer whose name was redacted from the report then notified other responding police that he had found the suspect. It wasn't hard. He had a big bag full of Pokemon cards, and he was going, yay, yay, yay. Um, I got them all. Look at this. Look at my Pikachu gold. Actually, can you do a voice for this guy? Oh, yeah. He is definitely high on meth. Why is he so beat up? Because <laughs> the officers went to town on this guy. They did. They're like, you stupid slave owner. <laughs> no, no, they didn't say that. You're the worst kind. You didn't even buy your Pokemon. <laughs> you stole them. You're a poacher. <laughs> You're a poacher. No. <laughs> officers identified by last names Williams and Mueller or Muller uh, both wrote in their reports that they arrived at the Meyer. Uh, Fields had gotten out of the car and was running from the unnamed officer. Oh, don't ever run. Well, you don't run. No, no. Uh, they also noted that cameras at the store recorded that Fields began fighting with the officer. Don't ever fight. Uh, pushing him and attempting to take him down. That's that's a bad scene. <laughs> Mueller noted that he arrived at the scene. The officer had gotten on top of Fields and the suspect was actively resisting being placed in handcuffs. However, the video of the incident captured by an off-duty employee of the Nexstar Media Group Incorporated, the parent group of NBC4, begins in these moments and showed that officer repeatedly punched Fields in the head while Fields tried to cover himself with his hands. I think he was probably shouting, too, want to catch them all, huh? Want to catch them all, huh? <laughs> um, Fields was heard repeatedly shouting that he was sorry in the video. Aw. Oh, jeez. Other officers then arrived and assisted in pinning him. Mueller's report said he ordered the suspect several times to place his hands behind his back, turn onto his stomach, and to stop resisting, but noted Fields continued actively resisting our attempts to secure his hands by pulling his arms under his body and trying to roll over. The video showed that as the group asked him to roll over on his stomach, one officer got up and retrieved a taser from the ground. The officer was yeah. heard tasing Fields in the video, and the suspect could be heard yelling in pain. It got escalated. My favorite thing is when someone's doing stuff he's doing and the officers are like, stop resisting, stop resisting. The first thing they say is, I'm not resisting. I'm not resisting. Yes, you are. Yeah, yeah, you are. Uh, neither the unnamed officer punching Fields repeatedly in the head nor another officer tasing the suspect, both captured on video or mentioned in the unredacted portion of the Westerville police report. Instead, Mueller noted that he was eventually able to control the suspect's right arm and hold it behind his back while Officer Shoemaker gained control of the suspect's left arm and placed it behind his back. Williams added that Field sustained injuries during his arrest and was transported to St. Anne's Hospital for treatment. The officer said they retrieved the Pokemon cards as well as suspected drugs from the Impala. Williams and Mueller documented that they suffered scrapes or cuts on their hands while the unnamed officer received a cut on his finger and swelling on his wrist during the arrest. Fields' mugshot from the arrest showed he suffered a black eye as well as other bruising and cuts to his face and head. Acting president of the Fraternal Order of Police, Brian Steele, said the video shows a snippet of the incident and all of the facts still need to come out. Westerville is one of the most professionally well-led departments in the Fraternal Order of Police. He said, we know what I'm sorry, we know that they will give this a thorough review. If there was wrongdoing or some kind of policy violation, the officer will be held accountable. Uh, initially watching it, my training experience, it looks like a good arrest all day long, is what he's quoted as saying. Okay. 
<laughs> All right. Don't resist the police. Fields was charged with felony assault after his arrest, according to Delaware County Common Plea court records he was not facing any theft charges as of monday afternoon a separate case in franklin county common pleas court showed fields had pled guilty to a may 2021 arson but did not show up for his sentencing date the last activity in the case record showed the court had issued a warrant for his arrest in november so there you go Let's move on. A driver nearly hits pool players after crashing into a pub with police in pursuit. We go to England. Okay. Where that sort of thing happens. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a pub. They got very narrow streets. That's true. A Nottinghamshire has been jailed, a Nottinghamshire person place or thing i guess i don't know there's nothing on the end of it has been jailed after crashing a stolen land rover into a pub in workshop england nearly missing several customers who were playing pool inside cctv footage released by nottinghamshire police on monday december 11th shows the moment the dangerous driver crashed into the lockside pub in work workshop uh, after attempting to evade police on march 27th police said the driver, 37-year-old Jamie Kettle, had stolen the Land Rover and hit speeds up to 110 miles an hour. Wow. A Land Rover, good for you. Yeah. In England, good for you. Right. On the right side of the road, even. Uh, yeah. While being pursued by officers, after crashing into the pub, Kettle fled into a nearby canal, uh, but was swiftly located by specialist dogs and arrested. Wow. Okay. The fact that he crashed at 110 miles an hour, was able to get out and get into a canal is impressive. Yeah. Yeah. And you heard what the game-winning shot of the billiards game was, right? No, what's that? Eight ball in the passenger cup holder. <laughs> wow. Impressive. <laughs> uh, Kettle was charged with several offenses, including dangerous driving and aggravated vehicle taking. Aggravated vehicle taking. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds like a As nice... Opposed to just vehicle taking. Yeah, aggravated vehicle taking. Uh, he also pleaded guilty to two counts of common assault and a witness intimidation charge related to two incidents that occurred the year before. He was jailed for two years and his driving privileges were revoked for three years and three months, police said. Very, very impressive. I give him one of these. That's, I do too. Yeah, that's... Good for him. Yeah. Congrats. If you're going to run for the police, run in style. That's right. That's right. Bruiser, what's your favorite topping for your meatball sandwich? Uh, I love some good mozzarella on there. Oh, mozzarella is great. How about Visine? Yeah, it makes me throw up. Yeah, that, that would get you sick. Yep, you put Visine in anything, he's making puke. That's right. We're going to go to Florida again, where after purchasing a meatball sandwich for his nephew, a Florida man poured Visine all over the, the food which was later partially consumed by his relative, according to police who arrested the man on a felony poisoning charge. Don't ever put Visine on somebody's food unless you want to kill them. Well, you can put a drop or two in someone's food and it makes them sick. But if you put a whole bunch on there, you, you will poison them. You will kill them. Yeah. Uh, investigators say 45-year-old James Leach was at a market near his Pinellas Park home Wednesday evening when he asked an employee for a bottle of Visine. Leach allegedly opened a container of food and proceeded to pour the eyedrop solution all over the meatball sandwich inside. When a worker declared that the liquid could hurt someone, Leach reportedly replied that it would only cause the victim to shit himself and puke his brains out. 
<laughs> no, not that much will kill them. <laughs> uh, Visine's active ingredient, which is tetrahydrazoline hydrochloride, can actually be lethal if ingested. Yeah. The market employee who described Leach as a regular customer said the suspect had issues with his nephew and declared that he hated his kin. Leach and the victim reside together and have a long history of domestic-related issues, say cops, who added that officers have answered several prior calls uh, calls for service at the pair's home. After receiving a 911 call from the market, police reviewed store security footage, which... The affidavit states clearly showed Leach dousing the meatball sandwich with Visine. When police subsequently arrived at Leach's home, he declined to answer questions and requested a lawyer. The victim said he had only consumed a small portion of the sandwich before cops showed up and was unaware that Visine had been added to his meal. While medical help was summoned for the victim, he ultimately refused treatment. Not a smart move. Well, yeah, but he didn't have any effects, they said. He was just starting to eat it. So he's probably like, oh, what's going on? <laughs> Why are you so many people watching me eat the sandwich? <laughs> what do you mean I got to get my stomach pumped? This is a good sandwich. Right, right. Leach was charged with the poisoning of food or water, a felony in which he is locked up in lieu of $50,000 bond. A judge has charged Leach, or ordered Leach, rather, who has pleaded not guilty... I can't believe he's pleaded not guilty. He's on yeah. film to have no contact with the victim. Leach's rap sheet includes convictions for improper exhibition of a firearm and resisting or obstructing police without violence. Here's a look for you, Bruiser, at the guy who puts Visine in your sandwich. Yeah, he looks like a douche. He does, doesn't he? Well, that's the other it, end. That's not the eyes. That's uh, it, blow <laughs> it blows my mind that he's caught on film. Yeah. And the marketplace people even told him, hey, you shouldn't do that. So there's an eyewitness. Yes. He still pleads not guilty. Still pleads not guilty. Three stories left in Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals. A Florida man gets agitated by the neighborhood Christmas parade, decides to fire off a few gunshots. <laughs> That's not how you handle that. <laughs> no, we're staying in Florida. We go to Middleburg, where a Florida man was arrested after he allegedly fired off several shots during a neighborhood Christmas parade because he became agitated at what parade goers were doing. You know, celebrating Christmas. Yeah, yeah, because, you know. Mary I get it. Like, by the time actual Christmas rolls around, you're sick of Christmas music because everyone's been playing it since July. Yeah. So you're just like, all right, I'm sick of it. But firing guns at people is not the way to do it. No, just put in some. Leave Mariah Carey alone. Yeah, put, put in some earplugs and go in the other room. 43-year-old Douglas Moore was arrested and charged with six counts of aggravated assault with a firearm, reckless discharge of a firearm, and using a firearm while under the influence of alcohol after the incident that unfolded in the 4100 block of County Road 21B in Middleburg on Saturday had happened, according to an arrest affidavit. As the Middleburg Christmas Parade was underway Saturday evening, deputies and SWAT team members responded to a location along the parade route after several gunshots were heard. Middleburg is about 30 miles southwest of Jacksonville. According to deputies, Moore became agitated by the activities generated by parade attendees. That's when he discharged a pistol several times while walking onto the property where a group of people were. The arrest affidavit noted that no victims or witnesses ever entered Moore's property, so they were not in his yard. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Deputies said that when they approached the back of the property, they saw several people yelling at the suspect, identified as Moore, 
at the property line. They were demanding to know why he was shooting a gun at them, according to the affidavit. When Moore allegedly refused to comply with deputies' orders to get on the ground, he was taken to the ground and put into custody. Deputies also observed Moore's slurred speech and bloodshot, watery eyes. I think that means he was on something. He no, was drinking a little bit of the eggnog, huh? I think so. No injuries were reported. No one was struck by the gunfire. According to deputies, uh, Moore was transported to the Clay County Jail. Well, that's good. Nobody was hurt. That's true. That's very true. Just some idiot who just hates Christmas. Speaking of an idiot that um, loves Christmas but hates dogs, Ugh. I'm going to make this short because it is a gruesome story. Um... A man who was a witness said a man who resembled Santa Claus shot a dog to death and wounded another canine. And yes, we're going to Florida again near his Florida residence. That according to cops who seized the suspect's rifle and charged him with several felonies. Investigators allege that 61-year-old Joseph Seal uh, fired on the animals Tuesday afternoon about a block from his Fort Pierce residence. Police found the dead dog surrounded in a pool of in, in droplets of blood while the second dog suffering from a through and through wound was discovered hiding in an abandoned house. Uh, cops reported finding four twenty-two caliber shell casings at the scene of the shooting. A witness stated that an older white male who looks like Santa Claus emerged from a wooded area and shot at the dogs. An arrest affidavit does not indicate if someone owned the dogs or whether they were strays. A man who reported hearing multiple shots said the rifle-toting uh, seal had declared he was going to go take care of business. That's a quote. Tell you what, you want to get on my bad side. You want to see how hard I fight, hurt my wife, hurt my kids, or hurt my dogs. That's right. A police check of dispatch records associated with Seal's residence revealed that a Joe called 911 last month and threatened to shoot and kill the dogs. Seal cops say was the Joe that contacted 911. Seal was arrested on multiple charges, including animal cruelty and the use of a firearm during the commission of a felony. He's being held in the St. Lucie County Jail in lieu of... $18,250 bond. Tell you what, up the bond and any criminals that want to have a go at him, go ahead. Yeah. that's Start right. spreading rumors he was touching children that's or hurting right. animals. That's right. You guys can just take all day and do whatever you want. So, yep. There you go. And uh, finally, this is our not safe for work portion of the program. We'll give you five, four, three, two, one. This guy's a little sick. Okay, I'm gonna give you a I'm gonna give you a picture of him here, Bruiser. He looks like a late '90s boy band guy, doesn't he? He can be in a boy band, yeah. All right, here's the deal with this guy. Uh, of course, we're staying in Florida. A lot of Florida stories today. Well, of course, it's Florida. This... While they're waiting, you say it's God's waiting room. While they're waiting, they commit crimes. That's right. <laughs> While they're waiting to. Go to the great beyond. They're, cre they're creating plenty of mischief. This guy molested a manatee mannequin. It's not even a real manatee. It's not even a real manatee, which would be disgusting, but. Yes. It was a manatee oh. mannequin. He Do you all think he's singing the song, Barbara, manatee, manatee, manatee. <laughs> he was also accused of throwing gator nuggets. What are gator nuggets? Oh, I'm about to tell you, my friend. Okay. 
During a drunken outburst last Friday evening, a man threw quote-unquote gator nuggets into a Florida restaurant and then proceeded to sexually molest a manatee mannequin in front of staff and patrons of the establishment. Here, everyone, take, take some gator nuggets. And you, you big, sexy, beautiful bitch, you're coming home with me. <laughs> oh, he wasn't even coming home. He was taking it right there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Investigators say 23-year-old Anthony Michael Lessa was intoxicated when he caused a disturbance at Rick's Reef, which is a St. Petersburg seafood joint. Seafood, see this. <clears throat> Just saying. Do you think he mistook the manatee for the waitress, and that's why he started doing it? Mm. He was that drunk? It's kind of hard to mistake one for the other. Yeah. You know what I mean? Lessa, cops allege, was throwing gator nuggets found in his right pants pocket upon arrest into the restaurant. He came into the restaurant with gator nuggets in his pocket, okay? Yeah. When employees confronted Lessa about flinging the nuggets, he became belligerent and advanced on the life-size manatee. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Come here, you. Note. I'm going to get you. Note, as for those airborne gator bites, here's your note as to what gator nuggets are. Yeah, I'm curious. Think chicken nuggets, but instead they're made with alligator meat. Oh, those could be good. Mm-hmm. If they get cold, they get rubbery. Well, yeah, they obviously turn into weapons. <laughs> or they bounce off your forehead lovingly, one or the other. Uh, to the shock and likely amusement of onlookers, Lessa then went on to sexually molest the mannequin, the manatee mannequin, which has been known to wear a T-shirt promoting the consumption of tacos. <laughs> okay it's a joke within a joke i'll show you the manatee in a second a criminal complaint does not further describe the alleged mol- molestation of the manatee after running from the eatery lessa cops charge caused a disturbance at a nearby hotel where he yelled and cursed at a front desk worker and stood in the parking lot yelling obscenities that's because he wanted a room for him and his manatee. I guess. She wouldn't give it to him. I guess. Look at this big, beautiful bitch. I'm going to take her and I'm going to ravage her. Give me a room. <laughs> when police arrived at the scene, Lessa exhibited multiple signs of intoxication and kept asking why he was being arrested. Charged with disorderly intoxication and disturbance, Lessa was booked into the jail on the misdemeanor count. He was a, he was released from custody early Saturday morning. According to his LinkedIn page, Lessa is a student pilot who is attending a flight school in Ponta Vedra, Florida. Lessa, who attended West Virginia University, oh, that explains a lot, gave his home address as his family's Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania residence. How nice. Yeah, he's Getting everybody involved. He's multi, multi. He has multi-state resonance. I guess so. He's a world traveler. Here, Bruiser, is the manatee in question. Oh, that's a cute manatee. Yeah, it's got a little, a little shirt on that says, "Did someone say tacos?" Yeah, yeah. And it looks like an everyday manatee. How would you sexually molest it? There's nothing sexual on there. Well, you have to think now. If you look, the manatee has its little legs tightly wound yeah 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 so i gotta think maybe there was a little oral involved (laughs) (laughs) i don't know maybe maybe he did whip this thing out and tried to rub up against it i don't know there's a menu board right next to it maybe he got the second base with it by putting his hand up the shirt oh that could be i don't know 
Questions, questions, and more questions. Questions we can't answer on this episode of Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals. Maybe you have a theory as to how you molest a manatee mannequin. If you do, write in. Tim at darknessradio.com. <laughs> we'll air your, your, uh, your dirty, dirty thoughts. Because <laughs> I got nothing. I, I don't know how. I, uh, I just see a manatee. <laughs> I see a manatee statue. <laughs> <laughs> I got nothing. Uh, Bruiser, what's going on this weekend? Uh, we got some training at the AML Training Center. Um, AMLWrestling.com slash training. Um, and then January 20th, Big War Games 3. Coming to Winston-Salem, Benton Convention Center. Got Kurt Angle coming in, Arne Anderson, and J.J. Dillon. So come watch. The war will be settled. There you go. There you go. Uh, I'm off from KNSI for a couple weekends. So there you go. Oh, that's the holidays. It's the holidays. But we got big shows coming up. Big shows coming up this week. Uh, we've got Supernatural News coming up. And then Thursday, 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 uh, we have a big show coming up with a guest that is going to uh, change your perspective. Uh, we have a guest that not only is a demonologist, but has had some interesting experiences with UFOs. Really? Okay. Well, we've heard them linked in the past. Yeah, so we're going to sit down on Thursday with our guest, Terry Ling Kell. And she will be with us on Thursday. We'll talk with her about her experiences with demonology and with UFOs. That's coming up on Thursday. So there you go. Okay. All right. So uh, that is it for today for uh, True Crime Tuesday. I want to thank John Ferrick for being with us and that update on Stephen Avery and the Making Murderer case. Uh, again, the book is out there. We have a link in the description of the program, the update to that book uh, that we were talking about earlier today. So go out and get that book. The name of that book is Wrecking Crew Demolishing the Case Against Stephen Avery. Uh, that'll do it. Uh, join us tomorrow for Supernatural News on Darkness Radio. Thank you very much for listening to True Crime Tuesday.